Hello, everyone, and welcome to Let's Go to the Ring. I'm Bob Moore, and I'm joined by Alec Pridgen and John Mullins. Hey. We'd like you to join us as we take a trip back to the good old days, and sometimes not so good old days, of World Championship Wrestling, WCW. Together, we're going to explore WCW and find the high points and low points along its run. We're going to seek to understand just what WCW was and what it can still be for fans looking back today. We're going to look at WCW by the series, looking at each year's edition of one particular show. By doing so, we hope to find out what makes that show tick. What makes Starcade Starcade, for instance, or Halloween Havoc, Halloween Havoc? Are there traits or themes that repeat themselves across the shows? Which years are strong and which years are weak? We're going to largely be looking at versions of the shows available on the WWE Network, while other versions of each show are out there, and edits have been made to the WWE Network versions, these versions are the most easily available to fans these days, for us, and for anyone who might want to go have a look at the shows we discuss. We'll be starting with the show commonly called WCW's version of WrestleMania, their original supercard, Starcade. So how's it going tonight, guys? You excited to start this? Yeah, that's good. I am. Well, I'm excited. I'm looking back here, not as somebody who grew up watching this and wants to reminisce, but as someone who really wants to get an appreciation and understanding of it now. Back when WCW was running, I only actually caught it near the very end. I heard about it at times from friends in high school, but I never really got into it at the time. And it was more my roommate who would sometimes have it on in the dorm when I was in college. Actually, and to be honest, this is such a dark thing to say at the start of this show. The first wrestling show I can actually remember watching in detail is the last ever episode of Nitro in 2001. So I guess why I wanted to do this is that I saw the end of WCW's story, and now I'd like to learn how they got there. Al, what about you? Yeah, I didn't get into wrestling until about 2000. So by the time I started watching it intermittently, it was pretty bad. All the writing was not great. Though none of it was really that good anymore. It still hung on for another like year and a half by the time I started watching it, but not the best point to start watching a show. Yeah. John, what about you? Well, actually what got me into wrestling was my sister's boyfriend used to watch it with her, and there was just some nights where they were sitting on the couch, and I just ended up joining them and watching it with them. Mm -hmm. So it sounds like this is a journey of discovery for us, really, kind of, yeah. rather than us expounding on what we already know. Yes. And I think it's going to be a fun one, and I hope that you'll all enjoy listening along. Our journey begins in 1983 at the first Starcade. Starcade was created in 1983 when the company that would become WCW was still known as Jim Crockett Promotions. Owned by the Crockett family, Jim Crockett Promotions was an important part of the National Wrestling Alliance, the NWA, a nationwide group of different regional wrestling promotions that allied with each other to cross-promote and share stars. The 1980s were the waning days of the NWA's power. In 1983, Vince McMahon, having recently purchased Capital Wrestling from his father, broke from the NWA and began seeking to expand beyond his region to form a true national promotion, moving from the World Wide Wrestling Federation to the snappier World Wrestling Federation, or WWF. Jim Crockett Promotions, on the other hand, stuck with the NWA, but owner Jim Crockett Jr., currently president of the NWA, 
had ambitious plans for a national expansion as well. He would aim to create a unified NWA with all of its territories under his ownership. Interestingly enough, the name World Championship Wrestling first surfaced not connected directly with Jim Crockett Promotions, but with Georgia Championship Wrestling in 1982. At the request of Ted Turner's TBS, Georgia Championship Wrestling changed its public brand name to World Championship Wrestling in 1982. Georgia Championship Wrestling, though, would not bear the name for too long. More on that when we look at 1984. In 1983, Jim Crockett Promotions created Starcade, a massive event that would be broadcast over closed-circuit television to arenas where the promotion usually toured. The name is said to be wrestler Dusty Rhodes' idea, and traditionally he's thought to have had the idea for the show and booked it as well, though some claim it was actually Dory Funk Jr. at this time, and Rhodes just came up with the name and wouldn't book Starkid until later editions. I'm not a wrestling historian, so I'll leave that to others to debate. I mean, if it helps, uh, Dusty Rhodes is the main event of the next two shows we're going to watch, so he's probably definitely booking it then. <laughs> but he is all over this show, too. That's true. So, yeah. Starcade aired on Thanksgiving Day as the continuation of a Jim Crockett Promotions tradition, but in the process, it was starting something new, a massive central supercard, which would be the focus of the promotion's year and broadcast across their territory, and later nationally by pay-per-view. So this is, by my understanding, the very first wrestling super show, that at least in terms of being broadcast right. across uh, you know across a wide yeah. area. It predates WrestleMania by, I think it's two years. I believe so, yes. And also I know the AWA tries some as well, but I don't think they've made their Super Clash. I think that's right. later in the 80s. So Jim Crockett Promotions definitely deserves some some real credit for kind of putting together the, the very first huge Super Card. Starcade 1983, A Flare for the Gold, aired on Thanksgiving Day... November 24th, 1983, from the Greensboro Coliseum in Greensboro, North Carolina. 15,447 were in attendance, and about 30,000 further fans watched via closed circuit. So, how was Starcade 1983? And what happened that night? Well, let's go to the ring. Our first match actually kicks the show right off without even any kind of introduction whatsoever. I don't know if that's the original version or if it's just the version on the WWE Network, but we do end up, after the first match, getting a welcome to the show speech from the announcers, so maybe that is actually how it started. Boom, we're in the ring with a few wrestlers, and no one even says something for a few moments. It's kind of weird. The first match is the Assassins versus Rufus R. Jones and Bugsy McGraw. I just want to say briefly that Bugsy McGraw it may be my new favorite wrestler name <laughs> it's, it's it's up there yeah it's, it's definitely charmingly eccentric the assassins are a masked uh, duo in bodysuits whose gimmick is that they sort of swap in and out although one of them is very young and fit in a bodysuit one of them is not so it's definitely not like you could actually mistake them unless you only look at their head and squint <laughs> with one eye open maybe so it's not a true like twin gimmick like you get with the uh, Killer Bees or anything. Right. But that said, they had a different silly wrestling gimmick, which is they would take a little piece of metal, put it inside their mask, and then headbutt people, which would instantly knock people out. Apparently this being super lead, I guess, the densest metal known to mankind. 
and also having no effect on them. You know, get to get their own skull somehow. It's, yeah, that's how physics works. And maybe he had like a metal plate in his forehead too, and yeah, he could have a ridge. Yeah. <laughs> oh, he's a Klingon. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that are one of the vampires from Buffy, maybe. Yeah, it's some well, weird forehead with too. an osmium plate. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. <laughs> But yeah, one of the highlights they show on a previous build-up is that they're holding a headbutting contest, because that's the thing, between Sassin number one, which is the older, fatter one, and Rufus R. Freight Train. Which you guys I forgot name. the Freight Train, yeah, yes, sorry. It's Rufus R. Freight Train Jones. So yeah, the contests go extremely lopsided until they strike the referee, again, in a headbutting contest. You need a referee for this, apparently. And put the metal plate in, which instantly knocks out Rufus. And that's about all there really is to this build-up, other than they're bad guys, they cheat, and now here's two people. One of whom, incidentally, is the, I want to say, say world champion, because there's definitely Harley Race at this point, but this is Mid-Atlantic Wrestling, and he's the Mid-Atlantic Wrestling Champion, which would think would be the world championship, but this at this area you'll find there are way too many titles to keep track of anything. Yeah. We can call it, you know, the regional championship or something. Yeah. But either way, their champion for this company that's hosting this show is in a random tag match with a title not on the line. That's a little weird. Yeah. Ever so slightly. But there it is. I noticed M- McGraw has kind of a strange outfit. It looks like he's wearing, like, loafers and high socks rather than any kind of wrestling boot or shoe. He it's is, It's kind of yeah. a weird look. He's your drunk uncle who wandered in and started wrestling. Yeah. We start out with Bugsy McGraw against the shorter of the two masked assassins. The assassin gets the first strike with a shoulder block, but McGraw takes control from there. They go out of the ring pretty fast, but back in just as quickly, followed by the two going at it with big swinging punches. McGraw wins that, but the assassin tags his buddy. We get some of the taller assassin versus Jones next, and Jones beats up the tall assassin without much trouble. He goes for a pin at one point, and the camera suddenly tips wildly, so we miss the kick out. I was like, did the cameraman trip there or something? What was... Very odd production. Yeah. Yeah. We noticed that several times tonight, that there's there's all kinds of production difficulties. But I think we, we theorized while watching it that they told him he was done with his shot and get to another position, yeah. but didn't actually cut. But it mm. looks weird. Yeah. Or he got into the pitfall. Yeah. <laughs> McGraw and Jones trade off a bit with McGraw briefly in trouble at one point, but the two largely dominating. There's even a point where an assassin tries to punch Jones in the head, but he hurts his hand. Huh? I mean, just not... I heard you, but huh? (laughs) Yeah. His head is that hard. Eventually, the shorter assassin rakes Jones' eyes a couple times for the tall assassin to come in. Jones fights back and gets to McGraw while the tall assassin tags in the short assassin, and it breaks down with all four men in the ring. Jones throws the short assassin out, while McGraw fights the tall assassin, but the short assassin just comes back in and rolls McGraw up for the pin. Kind of a unceremonious ending. Yes. I will say there was one thing missing from the match recap, Bob. Yeah. Leg wiggling. Lots <laughs> and lots of leg wiggling. I was going to mention that too. Yeah, Jones has this weird style where he like will punch a guy and or elbow strike a guy, and then he will wiggle his knees in this weird little dance, and he does it constantly yes that is his gimmick and he is going to do it maybe he hits so hard that the energy bounces back through his body and thus makes his whole body <laughs> shake he's got old jelly knees there yeah. definitely a weird gimmick for a guy who goes by freight train yeah that's true 
I think it had some good showmanship. Yeah. Like, you know, they, they each had their own clearly, uh, other than the assassins, they each had their own clearly defined role yeah. in the fight. Um, I like your idea of him the, redirecting the energy from his attacks. <laughs> uh, but I thought it was actually more of like, you know, spinning his wheels, getting ready to, you know, do the next thing. Like He's like know. building up power. Yeah, yeah. It's his version of the, and, the, the, the Super Saiyan charge up. Kind of showing off a little bit too, you know, that, you know, a little bit of pride that, that seems to be interwoven through many of the matches that yeah sure i can see that yeah i mean the match is okay the, as a just purely as a match they were definitely they definitely had strong characters but yeah the match itself didn't do a whole lot for me i note for lots of posing leg shaking and gyrating <laughs> yeah he was my favorite person in the whole match everyone else had costumes and stuff but he actually did something with yeah like, he actually had some some character yeah. that yeah. was yeah yeah, for me, this wasn't a great match. The opening with McGraw and the shorter assassin was really clumsy at times, especially a bit where they tried to do some mat wrestling and it didn't really work out. Mm-hmm. Jones, I agree, is pretty amusing. His uh, shaky knees in kind of a dance between punches, elbow strikes, headbutts, and all that was that was funny to watch and entertaining. It never really felt like the faces were having much trouble, other than the the eye rake part. Yeah. And the ending just felt like it came out of nowhere. It feels very, very sudden. That can be good sometimes, but for me, for this one, it was just kind of, wait, that's it? Yeah. You know, they just get in trouble for the first time in the match and then roll up, done. Right. I will admit, I think my underwhelmed reaction to this may in part be that I've, I don't think, seen any of these guys wrestle before. So I'm not familiar with them. So that it's it's possible that if I saw more, I might get a little bit more of their spots but for me this one was pretty underwhelming and kind of an odd choice for an opener yeah i'm used to the later wcw era where openers are really hot matches and this one was kind of it was just there they didn't think cruiserweights another decade so kind of <laughs> yeah. out of luck yeah true i don't know what match you guys watched but i thought it was amazing <laughs> They had to get to the credits. It's probably like, okay, we got we got every, all of our prompters and everything's fixed now. Let's let's uh, <laughs> let's spin. Yeah, uh, I watched the very next show to see if anything super interesting happens. Basically, the assassins have fully given up on this since since they won, and they are beating up Dory Funk Jr. Okay, that's this, and that was mind you three days later. So okay, the very quick turnaround. So that one's done. Okay, apparently. So now we get Bob Cottle and Gordon Soley welcoming us to Starcade 83, a flare for the gold. It really does sound like this is their show intro, so it's definitely an odd start. They build up the title match, and they note that Dusty Rhodes is here to challenge the winner. Bob Cottle throws to Tony Schiavone, the future voice of WCW, who looks really young here. I like, looks like just out of college or something. He does, it's kind yeah. of like, um, I think he's actually only been the company for a few months tops at this point. I think he joins them around the time of the build-up to Starcade, if I recall correctly. Tony is in the dressing room, and he lets us know that he'll be conducting interviews back there throughout the night. Our second match of the night is Johnny Weaver and Scott McGee versus Kevin Sullivan and Mark Lewin, managed by Gary Hart. Sullivan and uh, Lewin, they're all over the build-up shows, but they don't really promote this match. Mm-hmm. They're just fighting other people. The only thing they really build up is that 
on a, the show before this, they attack Angel Mosca's son, which will play in the ending of this, but not affect this match at all, or really even the thing with Angel Mosca later. So it's kind of weird that that's so important, but also not important at all. Yeah, you get kind of a feeling, I guess, of there's angles for this show and there's angles for other shows that are going on. Right. You know, so it's not necessarily all focused around Starcade at this point. Is there any relation between this heart and some of the other hearts wrestlers? Uh, no, not as far as I'm aware. Yeah, I'm not aware of this being a relation. There's Jimmy Hart later too, and I don't think he's any relation to any of them. No, he. Although that's a weird thing because he's the first manager the heart True, yeah. have. If it's not directly connected, it's kind of a weird coincidence. You hired a, a heart and then put him with a heart. Maybe that's why they decided to put them together. <laughs> I will heart note I watched the the show after this it doesn't really have much really much follow-up to it however one of the jobbers is bret hart but with two t's <laughs> so it is not the same guy but it's just kind of weird bret hart's on a ww show in 1983 yeah but it's also not him interesting yeah we'll see the real one in what like 14 years 14 years yeah, yeah. bob Cottle accidentally refers to manager gary hart as kevin hart which would be a little different. <laughs> a little bit, yeah. <laughs> Kevin Sullivan's in this match. It was interesting to see a young Kevin Sullivan. I've seen his later stuff. Yes. And he looks much more like a normal wrestler here rather than the crazy cult leader of the Dungeon of Doom. So it was pretty fun to see him like that. However, Gordon Soley does note that people accuse him of being a druid. So I guess even now he was doing kind of weird mystical bits with his character. It's just not quite as obvious. He doesn't have the, you know head tattoos or right. paint or whatever it is that he wears later on. By the way, is that a common thing, people being referred to as like an insult, that that might be a druid? I've never heard of that for, and that had be a thing before. I, I think on the indies, I think he actually was doing a Satanist gimmick. So I think maybe druid was a more okay for television mm, weird okay. mystic angle i don't know that, that is would... definitely not the same thing. no no <laughs> <laughs> it's to be clear mcgee and sullivan start off fast with some grappling and running the ropes and there's a nice couple of drop kicks from mcgee in there both teams trade off a bit until mcgee ends up in some trouble as sullivan and lewin work on his arm and shoulder McGee does get some hope spots along the way, though, including one cool bit where he breaks an arm hold by actually climbing up on Lewin's shoulder and jumping off to basically axe kick Lewin's arm. That was pretty cool, actually, yeah. McGee eventually fights his way to Weaver while locked in a hold, and the ref watches him fight for the tag really, really carefully, but then gets distracted and doesn't see the tag, so he doesn't allow it. Except Caudill tells us that Weaver was reaching between the ropes for the tag, and that's why it wasn't allowed. You always get that spot where the, the ref's distracted, he doesn't actually see the tag, so he doesn't allow the tag, but it sounds like what they were actually going for here was he's reaching for the tag in an illegal manner, so the, so the tag isn't allowed. Except the ref is watching the entire time, so why wouldn't he just say, hey man, you gotta go above the ropes? Yeah. <laughs> it's like almost cruel to, to wait for the tag and then say, nope, not legal. <laughs> well, what's the big deal exactly with going bit through the middle rope is as he has it's easier to reach people so you I, sh- I think it's because um the i mean the, the person in the ring has to be standing up to be reached above the ropes mm-hmm. so it is harder for them to fight to it where if you can tag between the middle or between the bottom rope or something like that you can do it while they're on the ground 
McGee eventually does make the tag, but we get a crowd shot at that exact moment, so we miss the tag. We do get to see the crowd reacting with a big pop, but yeah, WCW's not the best at camera timing at times. Weaver beats up both Sullivan and Lewin, but gets rammed into the turnbuckle. He starts getting double teamed, and McGee runs in to try and help, but that distracts the ref so Gary Hart can get in, and he helps Sullivan hold Weaver for Lewin to come off the top rope with a knee drop to Weaver's shoulder, which gets the pin. I can see how if that was generally done, that would really hurt, but that's like a, not really a knockout kind of situation. My thought was, like, I would get this if they ended it then with an arm lock. Sure. But he gets a pin. He hits him in the shoulder, and then that keeps him down for the three. I mean, technically, it was a stronger match than the first one for me. Mm-hmm. Not, disc- not discounting stuff Rufus Jones with making the interesting visually, but as far as an actual match and structure, it was stronger for me. Mm-hmm. I also noticed this interesting dynamic throughout the show, thinking back on it, of older wrestler and young partner throughout this. Because that's yeah. how the assassins are. The assassins are older wrestler and younger wrestler. There's certain things I think Sullivan and Lewin are as well. Mm-hmm. And definitely with McGee and Weaver. Yeah, yeah, true. They seem to be doing this as maybe kind of a mentorship thing, you think? Yeah. Yeah. Both teams seem to be more coordinated. You know, obviously they made... Uh, a little bit more point of the tags, even if they didn't get the camera angles to, show, yeah. <laughs> to highlight the that interaction. I think you're right with the uh, the point on having a like a journeyman and a, an apprentice and 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 all that. Uh, there's definitely some mentorship taking someone under their wing. You can see that the younger version does have you know a little bit more flair, but a lot of the same style than Mm -hmm. the other their tag team partner so that seems cohesive just by default yeah true you've got lewin and sullivan are both kind of that brawling and abuse a particular body part style yeah and yeah you had kind of weaver and mcgee i think moderately similar in style to some technical stuff going on with them and well say weaver is apparently noted as being the first wrestler to use the super holes as finisher right yeah so i definitely point to his technical prowess yeah yeah, for me, it's it was surprisingly brisk. This one's another one that feels really, really quick and has an ending that kind of, to a lesser extent than the first one, but it still felt like, oh, wait, that that's that's the finish? <laughs> you know, right. it was a little surprising. It's kind of one, one dirty trick and the heels get it, rather than I'm used to matches where, you know, they'll cheat and cheat and cheat and cheat and cheat. It wasn't a bad little match. I did think it was really cool to see Sullivan in his earlier days, since I'm more familiar with the Dungeon of Doom Sullivan, like I said. There was an odd amount of focus on the shoulder. Even the final move is a hit to the shoulder, which, like mm. we said, is like, why does that lead to a pin? I don't quite get that. McGee had some very nice moves from time to time. He had some very good drop kicks and that very cool axe kick spot. The weak link for me was probably Lewin, who didn't do a lot that interested me. He had a good kind of bully sort of look and some basic decent enough moves, but he didn't do anything that interesting to yeah, me. Yeah, I can say that. Um, I do want to ask, they call the bulldog move that Weaver uses on Sullivan at one point, the Oklahoma Stampede. Isn't that, do you recall, Al, I think that same name's used on used later on for somebody's power slam. I don't remember who, but... That's uh, Dr. Dusty Blitz. Is it Dr. Deaths? Yeah. yeah. Where he bumps him in the corner, then runs him out with the power slam. Yeah. So I was just, oh, wait, <laughs> I've heard that name before, but it's not that move. Yeah. Post-match... 
Sullivan and Lewin beat up Weaver some more, only for McGee to make the save, but Hart pulls out an object of some kind, a, a spike, I thought. Lewin charges over, takes the spike, and nails McGee with it, starting him bleeding. Angelo Mosca, that you mentioned earlier, yes. who's going to be a special ref in a later match, tries to save McGee, but gets stuck in the arm, so Lewin and Sullivan can beat up McGee some more. Eventually, Mosca does come back over and clear the heels out of the ring, though, and he and Weaver help McGee leave, with Mosca carrying him out. He uh, accidentally goes the wrong way out at first, though, which was pretty funny. Yeah. <laughs> we have blood loss and all. <laughs> yeah, yeah, everybody's bleeding and... I don't know how it led up to that. It just seemed like, you know, we're we're going to work out work this out, you know, whatever else and then, you know, blood. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, they just they go to town. I it, it is weird when Lewin runs over to Hart cuz he like he runs over and grabs his arm like, "Oh no, don't do it." And they just grabs the spike and goes to town on on the guy. It's, it was a weird uh weird moment. I know, yeah, I don't think it goes anywhere as far as a dissension among the team. So it's, Yeah. Just a weirdly handled moment, I guess. We go backstage again to Caudle and Soli. They break down the ending and say that behavior was totally uncalled for. They then throw to Barbara Clary, who is with a family from Gaffney, South Carolina, which is about 20 minutes drive from where I went to college. <sighs> they predict that Ric Flair is going to win the title. We then go to Tony with Harley Race. Harley says that he doesn't want to be in Greensboro any night, not just tonight. He doesn't like the situation, but he's been talking to his friends about Ric Flair's shortcomings and injuries, and he's going to use those against Flair. Nice, like, short but sweet kind of interview. He gives the basis for his character's strategy, and uh, he lets us know that he's the sort of guy that's going to go after injuries and take advantage of anything he can to win. Definitely tells you who the good guy is and who the who the bad guy is in this situation, I think, just from that. Well, yeah, if you're going to go after the crowd. <laughs> yeah. He, he has a good, considered promo style. Mm-hmm. He's not very over-the-top or energetic or anything, but he's very thoughtful. Mm-hmm. He thinks things through and has a kind of threatening tone, so... I will say that the way the question was asked was a little weird, because he's basically telling him what he needs to say in the promo by by the way you ask the question. It's a little strange. (laughs) He's like, insult Greensboro. (laughs) And Harley's like, okay. (laughs) It's not like, hey, how do you feel about being Greensboro? He's like, well, as you said, I hate it. Yeah. Oh, (laughs) thanks. Yeah. Well, you know, Tony's new. We'll give him a little bit of a pass. Our next match is Carlos Colon versus Abdullah the Butcher. Um, Al, you got some background on this one? Well, they announced it on the show before this, and that's it. Okay. I do recall them mentioning something in match commentary that there'd been an earlier match in Puerto Rico that got thrown out mm. or and then banned from Puerto Rico because it got so bloody, I think. Mm. And so... That's saying a lot. So Cologne is here to pursue Abdullah. Now, is he called the Butcher because things get bloody around him or i'm i'm guessing that's the idea that he's he's the butcher as in i will butcher you i will beat the heck out of you and make you bloody he looks like a big hunk of you know fatty meat if that helps as well (laughs) yeah and he now owns a restaurant so yes maybe he's more legitimately a butcher at this point yeah maybe true he could chop all his ribs in the back what's the (laughs) what's the restaurant called 
Um, I think it's like Abdullah's House of Chinese Food and Ribs. I believe that is the case, <laughs> yes. <laughs> Field trip. They grapple to start, and Abdullah goes right to pulling out some kind of object and hitting Cologne with it, but puts it away, and they brawl some more. Cologne fights back and ends up stealing Abdullah's object and hitting him with it to get him bleeding. Right in front of the referee, he can clearly see it. Is this a DQ? No. no. <laughs> yeah, no. they never said this was a no-DQ match, but no. apparently it is, I guess. Cologne controls from there and ends up going for a pin, but Abdullah flings him off onto the referee and goes for an elbow drop, which Cologne dodges. The ref does not dodge and gets pretty much flattened under the rather weighty Abdullah. Yes. Cologne gets the figure four leg lock on Abdullah, but the ref is out. And while the ref is out, someone, I think the announcers called him Hugo Savanovich or something, but I couldn't quite hear it. See. Uh, he comes into the ring and hits Cologne, and the ref wakes up in time for Abdullah to pin Cologne for the win. It's weird that Abdullah... Then what, like 10 seconds, and immediately start stabbing a guy? Yeah, it's right away! Yeah, I mean, it's not like... It's not like he tries to wrestle normally, it doesn't go his way, and then he starts cheating. It's just like, well, I'm gonna start dabbing you now. That's just, this is my thing. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, play the, the big card first, right? I guess so. He he does at least do a little bit better of a job of hiding it from the ref than Cologne right. does. So, I guess if you could sneak in an advantage early on. Yeah. There's some definite hygiene issues related to this match, given that Abdullah had kept that fork or knife, wherever it is, inside the top part of his yes. outfit. He pulls it out, stabs the guy with it until it draws blood, puts it back in his tights, and then Carlos pulls it out of there and then stabs Abdullah with it and then puts it back in his tights. Yeah. He's yeah. going to make sure that all their blood alcohol is high enough. <laughs> so it's quasi-sanitary. Sure. I was pretty much watching Abdul the whole time. It basically, I really don't recall too much from that uh, match other than when he was, you know, what moves he used because he's just, a, he's got a certain presence. He is a big guy. I'm not just saying that, but I'm just saying like he's not, he doesn't appear to be, you know, holding back at any point. Yeah, no, I, I can definitely appreciate that. It's just, it, it tells you that how quickly he goes to using a foreign object, that how little there is to really do it feels like he doesn't really have a lot of moves necessarily and he needs to resort to the object then kind of resorts to just clubbing blows this match is kind of all punches and kicks i think and there's not like a lot of structure to it really yeah also does everyone do the figure four in wrestling at this point i honestly didn't think it was that common of a hold until later on but we see it here, and I think a few other times on this show, we see the figure well, four, actually. Well, yeah. Valentine does it every... Right, right, right. yeah, well yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I found this one, honestly, fairly dull. There's not too much to it other than some basic brawling, a few hits with an object, and Abdullah the Butcher leaning on the ropes every chance he gets. Mm. Cologne does do a nice leg drop at one point, and yeah. it was pretty funny to see the ref just get flattened by Abdullah's elbow drop, but there wasn't really much to see here. It did feel like another match that ended kind of out of nowhere, too. Just one quick, easy cheat by the heels, and it's all over. Yeah. That seems to be the theme of a lot of the early matches. Yeah, I think the problem is that this is probably like the 20th or 30th match between Abdullah Butcher and Carlos Cologne, something like that. It was only one 
we have seen and will see, I think. Yeah. So we're seeing the later stages where they've abandoned the story and they're just going to fight now. Yeah, is it? Were there other matches beforehand that had something more to them and now it's this is meant to be the emotional blow-off where this is just a bloody brawl and that is the story? You sure. know, in which case I can kind of understand that. I will note that Abdul the Butcher's manager became a color commentator. He was a Spanish commentary team for about 10, 15 years with WWF huh. and WWE. Interesting. So he's all over WWE shows, even though he's on the first WCW show. Interesting. Yeah. Back in the dressing room, we get Tony Schiavone interviewing Angelo Mosca. Tony asks Mosca, whose arm is bandaged up, if he'll still ref the match with his arm injury. Mosca says he'd do it if he had only one arm. He gets angry and shouts about how seeing the bloody McGee made him think of his own son, and how feeling the spike just got his Latin blood in an uproar. He thinks actions like that don't belong in the NWA, and he respects youth and professional wrestling. Blood is thicker than water. Tony also asks Mosca about the world title match, and Mosca predicts Ric Flair will win. I don't know about you guys, but what was hilarious to me was he's cutting this promo about being angry about what happened to McGee and having sympathy for him and thinking of his son and everything. And this whole time, McGee is seated next to him on the bench, leaned against the wall, bleeding from the head and barely conscious and not even bandaged yet. I'm like, Mosca's sympathetic, but he's not going to help you get medical treatment, apparently. Yeah, <laughs> right? Meanwhile, Mosca's arm is fully wrapped up. Oh, yeah, up. it's fully wrapped up. He made sure he got treated. Sorry, guys, all the gauze on my arm. <laughs> all for you. This is a big, thick arm, so, you know. That's true. The whole role right there, yeah. He sounds eerily like um, Lou Obano as well. Kind of does, yeah. Which threw me when he first talked about his Latin blood, because I guess sworn he was Italian. But, I mean, hey, it's fine. Just confused me. <laughs> well, you know, they, they used to speak Latin in Italy. True. So, maybe he just got confused and meant the Latin language. Yeah, I guess. He's <laughs> romantic. <laughs> After Mosca's interview, we also get some predictions from the crowd, too. They agree with Mosca. They think that Ric Flair is going to win it. Our next match is Bob Orton Jr. and Dick Slater versus Mark Youngblood and Wahoo McDaniel, who I think just replaced Bugsy McGraw for one of my favorite wrestler names. <laughs> That's an awesome name. It is. So I'll go over this a little more later, but basically back in July, Harley Race, once he realized he had to face Ric Flair, since he won the title from him, put a bounty on him. That bounty was entered paid off by Slater and Orton, who did some sort of pile drive mood to him, which seemed to take him out of wrestling. Come August, he'll do a promo saying he's never going to wrestle again, but it's clearly a lie because I'm watching the show. But also, <laughs> he'd be back by September for that. So as part of that, Wild McDaniel, who's a close friend of Flair's in this, and Mark Youngblood are in this match basically because they support Ric Flair and they're getting revenge for him. At this point in the show, they start putting photos of the wrestlers along with their names up during the introductions. I guess the folks earlier weren't important enough for all that. Well, this is all a test show. They're like, let's just try putting yeah. graphics up now. It's like, hey, that might work. All, next show will be all graphics. And be like, oh, there you go. Yeah. It is interesting across this show to kind of see the slow development of their style. Like, you do kind of get a feeling that maybe they're trying some stuff out and seeing what works with this, with the backstage interviews and that kind of stuff. Before we get started, the ring announcer says that a special guest is with us this evening, but the audio goes out during the announcement. He finally gets out 
that it is former world champion Dusty Rhodes. The microphone cuts out again, and it seemed like they were going to show Dusty for an interview here, but the audio difficulties interfered, so they just go ahead with the match instead. The show has just tons of glitches. Yeah, it's weird that they cut to the guy telling us that Dusty Rhodes is there, and then don't cut to anything else. Yeah, they clearly seem like they're gonna, but then they just don't. Wahoo and Slater start, and Wahoo takes control early on. Wahoo tags Youngblood in, who works on Slater's arm. Slater takes Youngblood down, but gets kicked out of the ring over the top rope, and Slater and Orton try to convince ref Tommy Young that it should be a DQ. Young says it was momentum that took Slater over, and it isn't a DQ. The first instance on WCW's big shows of the WCW over-the-top rope throw equals DQ rule, and it's already being subverted. <laughs> yeah, it's weird. Yeah, because yeah, cause it's, uh, Slater makes a point of like throwing himself out, and Or does this big sort of animated protest for the back row about, yeah. hey, you should do DQ'd, and then the ref's like, no, I don't believe it. Yeah, they're both gesticulating wildly, like, DQ him, DQ him, DQ him, and ref's just like, nope, momentum. Slater gets the advantage, and he and Norton start trading off to fight Youngblood. He fights back at first, but slowly gets worn down by the two, and starts taking a beating, including a brutal double team with Orton holding Youngblood suspended on his knee for Slater to elbow drop him. Eventually, they get Youngblood outside, and Orton beats him up while Wahoo tries to complain to the ref, which lets Orton take advantage by slamming Youngblood into the railing. Back in, and Youngblood eventually escapes and tags Wahoo, who takes down both heels, only to get stopped with a cheap shot from outside by Orton. Orton tries holding Wahoo for a Slater jump off the top rope, but Wahoo dodges at the last second. Great timing there. And Slater nails Orton. Wahoo and Youngblood double-team Slater, but Orton is back in fast, and after tossing Wahoo out, he and Slater double-team Youngblood, leading to Orton hitting a superplex for the three, as Wahoo can't get there in time to stop it. I mean, I like this one a lot to a certain degree. Uh, my only problem with the pacing was kind of weird. There wasn't a lot of back and forth with the teams. It was faces would be strong for a minute, then it'd be net for five minutes. Yeah. And then they'd tag out, and the same thing would happen again. The stretches were just a little too long for me, as far as the formula goes, I would say. There's definitely good stuff in there, though. Orton and Slater are definitely Orton. Lone Board and Slater were really good. It's clear that they have the timing and sort of finessed all these moves that they need for this. Mm-hmm. And it's not that Wally McDaniels is dragging it down at all, but he's definitely an older wrestler at this point, so he has experience, but not necessarily the quickness and timing as so much. And yeah. Youngman has the opposite problem of being younger and not having experience. So they, it's just kind of an unbalanced tag team for me, but it's the overall was still pretty good. It's kind of mm-hmm. weird, but Daniel does run in there, but hits it at like three and one eighth, so too late, rather than hitting it two. Yeah, I mean, I guess that's that's good. It shows you didn't give up. He didn't, you know, he he did run in and try and stop it. He just wasn't wasn't there in time. Right. I know. Just for me, I think it was the idea that it's so close to being we'll stop at three. It's kind of confusing. There's a brief moment where they're not sure if he did it or not. True. Yeah. Yeah. They do kind of argue about that a bit. Well, this one seemed to be a little bit more in line with my experience of how a match should go. Like there is, mm-hmm. they have the crests of you know, like each each side gets a little bit of a uh, a head, and then goes back and forth. I I I don't really 
know how well the crowd is is responding to it <laughs> to be honest like but it, it, it's a little bit more traditional it wasn't one of those things where you, you had one person get a su- not a super move but you know have one trouble and immediately get pinned which well, I was grateful for right. at this point uh, during the show yeah this feels like a more of a normal tag match this match felt more familiar to me I guess a mm. little bit than some of the earlier matches that we've had I thought there was particularly nice heel work from Orton and Slater. Um, mm-hmm. Like you were saying, they kind of have the timing and they have the ability to kind of direct the match a little bit. Youngblood did a pretty nice job in peril. Sure. I did like that it took them time to wear him down. He did, he wasn't just like one cheap shot and now he's he's kind of already in trouble. Like like you were saying, John, it's it's he takes several moves and kind of keeps fighting back and keeps fighting back. And then finally, he just can't fight back anymore. And that's when they had the extended period with him, which I thought was pretty nice. Orton and Slater work really well together. They have some good rhythm. They do some nice double teams for individual moves. I really liked Orton's just like high-angle backbreaker that he does mm-hmm. midway through the match that he follows up by just, like, casually tossing Youngblood to the match. Like, I'm done with that one. <laughs> it's a, It was a good good bit of character in the middle there. Yeah, I was like, that move is interesting. The only time I've seen that move before was Heel Big Show when he goes ECW. Yeah. He starts doing that as well. He would do the Cobra Clutch where you do a backbreaker and then just toss a guy to yeah. like that. That's weird as people I think of now with that move. Yeah, it was it was that was a good like arrogant moment I thought for oh, yeah. him really nice. There's a few awkward spots in there too that hurt it a bit for me. There's one confusing bit where Slater's tagged in, but he leaves the ring a moment later, only to come back in after a couple more moves from Orton. Even the announcer sounded a little bit confused about when exactly it was that he tagged in. <laughs> yeah. A decent match. I don't think it's gonna stick with me, but it was uh, it was more than acceptable. Also notable, this match featured our first overhead camera shot of the evening. Oh, yeah. Caudle and Soli are both very pleased with this camera work, Soli making sure to praise the cameraman for being 75 feet in the air about every time that this uh, comes on. I'm not sure that the distances are right, <laughs> but honestly, I, I can't picture that. The overhead shot in, in wrestling shows can look really cool when it's used with you know a good grappling sequence. Yeah. I think Brett Owen at Mania 10, is it? I think that they frequently use that for some really so. complicated grappling sequence. It looks really neat. Say the one I'm used to seeing that when they start doing TLC matches. They intercut that in the match, and then when they release the shows on video, which I still have, they would you could see them just from the just from the overhead camera. Oh, really? Yeah, that's cool. So you can see longer sections of the match at the falls and the angle. That's that's pretty neat. Post match, the heels drag Wahoo to the apron. Slater considers jumping off the top rope to hit Wahoo's arm, but decides, nah, he'll jump from the apron instead. Orton is a real man, and he jumps from the top rope. The announcers tell us that Wahoo might have a torn bicep or tricep muscle. It's kind of funny seeing Bob Orton Jr. attack the arm, given that he's famous for getting, I think, a legitimate injury, and then wearing a fake cast for like 25 years. (laughs) Yeah, true, true. Should have sweeped the leg. (laughs) Uh, all these people are still around the next show and on. Orton and Slater stay around for a while. I would note that Mark Youngblood is featuring tag team match and stories later in the year, but actually with his brother, who we'll see later, not with Wahoo, but I won't give the context of that just yet. We go backstage again, and we have Tony talking to Ric Flair 
along with Ricky Steamboat and Jay Youngblood. Well, we're back in the dressing room with, and I'm sure I don't have to introduce these men, Nature Boy Ric Flair, former heavyweight champion, and, uh, of course, uh, Ricky Steamboat and Jay Youngblood here with us. Rick, uh, I've been over in Harley's dressing room, Harley Race's dressing room. He's been talking to his friends, he says, and he, he says he has something prepared, and I was wondering what you think of that. Well, I hope that he is prepared for the match of a lifetime because <clears throat> myself, Rick Steamboat, Jay Youngblood, we sit here, we know that in a very few moments we're going to be climbing into that ring with all the marbles on the line. I've prepared myself as hard mentally and physically as I can prepare myself. I'm ready for anything, and I want to take this opportunity in front of all these wonderful people who have supported us to wish Jay Youngblood and Rick Steamboat all the luck in the world. I know they've helped me. This is our night, and we're not going to let anybody down. I'll tell you what, Rick. You've worked long and hard for it, and to me, and I know to the people that are watching the Starcade 83, are the deserving world heavyweight champion. I know that you've trained with Rick and myself at Rick's gym, and it's, and it's taken a toll because you've proven to everybody around the area exactly what the flair for the gold means. Now, Rick and I have got a match against Jack and Jerry Briscoe, probably one of the most important matches of our entire life, Rick. Yeah, Everything goes. Jason, That's right. this is this is going. This is our most important match. We're going for the gold for an unprecedented fifth time. We're ready. We're mentally prepared, and without a doubt, Jack and Gerald Briscoe, you will see your inevitable end coming soon. For me, oddly, he's not known for his promos, really. But I think Steamboat actually comes off the best here. Yeah, he keeps it short, but it's a short, direct statement, and it really works well. It gets the point across really quickly. Everyone seems kind of subdued tonight. Yeah. And it's it's weird to see interviews with Ric Flair where he's not losing his mind. <laughs> yeah, I'll say by the end of the Starcade section, you're going to be seeing Ric Flair, you know, elbow dropping his jacket and like throwing his watch into the crowd. So it's weird seeing him so calm. Yeah. And serious. It's just a very normal good guy promo from him. Yeah. I don't think he has that personality yet. Yeah, I I I have never been able to gather exactly when he starts doing the full-on jet-flying, limousine-riding, son-of-a-gun uh, type of stuff. I don't know if he was doing that before this, and then he became a good guy for this show, so mm-hmm. he couldn't do it for the moment, or if he only actually starts that like in the build-up to next year. Yeah, I don't know how much that is either. I know that this is, I think, I want to say 10 years into his career, something like that? About yeah, so it's not like he's new to wrestling. Right. Well, and also at this point... He's come up in the ranks, started as Ric Flair, and then had a series of matches against Buddy Rogers, which he won the moniker of Nature Boy from him. Yeah. So clearly he's done some heel stuff like that before, and he's obviously, the robe and stuff is a carryover from being a heel. But it's, yeah, it's, it's weird at this point, he's very calm and sedate. Yeah. It's not bad, it's just, it feels weird hearing it from him, but someone else yeah. would feel normal. Yeah, I don't think it would bother me at all if it weren't Ric Flair. Tony throws to some highlights of the matches, but instead we go to Barbara, who's with Dusty Rhodes. Weird. I'm wondering if maybe those maybe highlights are removed in the WWE Network version, or maybe they just weren't there. I mean, I've, I'm more inclined to believe the latter, given this show, but it is it WCW, be. so yeah. Unfortunately, the audio cuts out on Dusty's promo, so we don't get a word of it. Uh, solely pricelessly says, well, if you can read his lips, you can tell what he's saying. (laughs) 
Barbara manages to get the mic working at least a little bit and says the winner of the world title match will have to deal with Dusty afterwards. And we just go to the next match. Yeah, I was curious because when she would talk, it seemed like it would work. Then she leaned towards him and it would immediately like shut out. Yeah. Shut out. It was really strange. It, it kind of cuts a little bit with her, so I think it's just generally having trouble. But it is funny that look, we lose 99% of what Dusty Rhodes says. Yeah. And he's clearly cutting a barn burner of a promo, too. Yeah. He is full-on, you know, dusty mode. You see his body language, yeah. It's yeah. big and boisterous. Yeah. And maybe Cajun? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I've never been quite clear what Dusty's accent is. I'm guessing Cajun is part he's of it. He's from the but... South. Just, you know, pick, pick a place. Our next match is Charlie Brown from Out of Town versus The Great Kabuki, managed by Gary Hart. This is title versus mask for the NWA Television Championship. Sometimes, from months back, they had a loser leaves town match, a pretty common occurrence in wrestling companies at this point. Usually when someone leaves a territory, they go somewhere else, or just as a shorthand thing. In this case, it's for storyline purposes. Jimmy Valiant, notable for his long blonde hair and giant blonde beard, loses the match and is shot the TV title. Within a month... Suddenly, a guy looks just like him, but wearing a mask, known as Charlie Brown from out of town, conveniently with a shirt that says Charlie Brown on the front and from out of town on the back. <laughs> in case you didn't know what his name was in full, shows up and starts giving them a hard time. Gary Hart gives out of constantly about how Jimmy Valiant's violating the terms of the match contract. Charlie Brown insists he's not Jimmy Valiant, doesn't know who that is. Announcers just essentially play dumb because Jimmy Valiant's a good guy. Eventually, he keeps doing so much that they are willing to put the title on the line with the condition that if he loses, that Charlie Brown must take off his mask and prove that he is Jimmy Valiant. Again, as if there's any doubt of that. Yeah. I mean, he does have the gigantic beard sticking out of the bottom of the mask. It's kind of... No one else has that beard. Exactly, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Unless he's trying to convince him that the beard is part of the mask. Which would be an interesting trick. I mean, it's not, but that'd be a good trick. Just, like, glue a beer and connect it to a mask, put the whole thing on as one piece. Yeah. But it doesn't. So this one has a bit of an odd condition to it. The NWA World Television title is on the line, but only for the first 15 minutes of the match's 60-minute time limit. It actually, from the way it's announced, sounds like the mask is also only on the line for the first 15 minutes of the match, too. I'm I'm not sure that that's actually the case. It sounded more to me like it'd be title for 15 minutes and mask overall. But the way it's worded here, it sounds more like both are only for 15 minutes. And then after those 15 minutes, you just win the match and yay. Yeah, I'm not sure though. It's really strange. I just I don't what I don't get is why they don't just make it a 15 minute match. It's like why does this have to be 60 minutes and but for the first 15 you can win something extra. Yeah. When I'm watching later match from the 90s, when they're doing the same sort of thing, they just make TV time matches 15 minutes. Right, yeah. And make a big dramatic thing about the countdown, how you have to you have to win. Yeah. And it's not like the match can go 30 minutes, but if you win at minute 17, you get nothing for it. No, yeah. It just, just cuts off there. Maybe they wanted a resolution? I mean, but you can get a resolution. It's just... just schedule the... I mean, the match doesn't go more than 15 minutes anyway. <laughs> so... You could also say that if... Charlie Brown doesn't win him at 15 minutes, he's forced to unmask. Because, I mean, he approached from the idea that the match is 15 minutes long because of the rules of the title. So if he doesn't win of that, 
by default, he loses. Yeah. Which means he has to get the mask up. It's a pointless complication. Yes. Kabuki's entrance gear is great. Very elaborate, with robes and an intimidating mask. Very ceremonial sort of pre-match ritual. He blows green mist a couple times during it, but he won't during the match, which feels a little bit odd. Um, I think, if I remember reading correctly, he's the originator of the green mist. He is, yes. Yeah. He's also billed as from Singapore, but he's most definitely from Japan. I've looked looked this up, but apparently he's just billed from Singapore. I'm not sure why. Soli notes as we get started that Charlie Brown may be from out of town, but he's downtown Charlie Brown to him. I'm um, not really sure what that means. I feel like that was a downtown Julie Brown reference if she was the person at this point, but I don't think she was on TV till like years later. So Maybe? I don't know. Unless that's a common thing I've just never heard of before her. He will say it later in the show about a totally different thing. So I think it's just something Gordon Soley says. He has a few interesting comments tonight that are uh, kind of perplexing, but, you know, also just interesting ways of th- saying things. So yeah, he's a good announcer. Just see every now and then he'll do something a little bit odd. Brown gets controls to start and takes Kabuki right outside to smack him with a chair, which, uh, again, seems like it should be a DQ, but just kind of isn't. He chucks the chair clear across the ring and drags Kabuki into the ring post crotch first, too. Gary Hart gets justifiably upset at all this. We get Brown trying a sleeper on Kabuki a couple times. Both times, Kabuki gets out by either clawing Brown's eyes or grabbing his nose. I couldn't quite tell which. Kabuki gets some kicks and chops and then starts going to claw holds, including some bits where he climbs up to the top rope and jumps off straight into doing the claw hold, which just looks weird. There's no impact, so it's not like jumping off the top rope adds anything, but he does this multiple times. Yeah, I don't understand this whatsoever. It's just, yeah, it's just he jumps off, stops, and then grabs him. The best I could think was maybe Brown's supposed to stand up and doesn't in time, and it's supposed to be a I jump off, grab you, and take you to the ground harder. Right. But it really just comes off weird. He's just like, I'm going to jump off the ropes and then gently kneel next to you and grab your head. Yeah. I mean, I could think of maybe if your idea was the misdirection, like if you jump off and make so he's going to cover his head, but that doesn't work with this because that would be blocking what you need to do. Yeah. If you're like jumping off, stop and then kick him in the stomach or something, I can see that. Yeah. With a face, but nothing is gained from jumping, landing and then grabbing a hold you could do on the ground without doing any of that stuff yeah there is um one point where he does jump off and do an actual impact move and then go towards the claw hold but yeah yeah the first two are not weird yeah say weirdly going into the rules of wrestling he has the move three times but the third time he changes the move and it still works in his favor yeah brown does get the crowd into his various attempts to get free and you can hear someone loudly chanting go charlie go at points especially when kabuki tries to take off brown's mask we end with Kabuki getting Brown into the corner and charging in, only for Brown to dodge, so Kabuki rebounds off the turnbuckle to the ground. Brown then hits a simple elbow drop, and that's enough for the pin. Gary Hart uh, wonderfully freaks out, going like full-on tantrum in the middle of the ring. I'm, I'm growing to like Gary Hart, actually, as we, as we go through this. He was pretty good outside the ring, too, with some kind of smarmy jerk manager bits where he'd like put kabuki's foot on the ropes and then the ref looks at him he's like well i wasn't doing anything what did you did you see me do something what what <laughs> yeah he's he's pretty decent i think 
I'd say he looks like Satan, but I guess we're not allowed to say that in any way. So he looks like a, I guess, a tree spirit. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Whatever the equivalent would be. <laughs> I thought it was overall pretty good. It was kind of a weird mix of being a serious match, but then also Jimmy Valiant slash Charlie Brown stuff. While consistent is kind of over the top in a lot of ways, his sort of mannerism, the way he does moves. It's definitely it's slightly more subdued than Rufus uh, our <laughs> Freight Train Jones, mind you, if that's the bar you're going to measure it by. But yeah, it's kind of a weird mix of it. He's fighting a super serious guy, and he's trying to win, but he's also trying to win in sort of slightly goofy fashion. Mm-hmm. But it's I think it still work for me, other than the weird jumping claw hold nonsense and the somewhat abrupt nature of the finish. I remember I watched a couple of shows. I don't recall what. Charlie Brown finisher was, but I don't. I feel like it would had to be more climactic than just double drop after you miss. Yeah, this oddly reminds me of um, reminds me of Mick Foley. Like we got masks, we got claw holds. We got I some can cra- see that. We got some craziness. So it it had that nice warm feeling, you know. Yeah, inside for me. Sure. Yeah, Charlie Brown is, is, or Jimmy Valiant, I guess is very expressive mm-hmm. and i think that's a that works in his favor quite quite well it gets comedic but it does also a very strong showmanship aspect to the match so there so there is that the crowd got pretty into this one at at, at points and brown did a really good job of keeping them involved i liked in particular as one bit where uh he's in the claw hold and he fights his way to his feet and then he like starts kind of like standing in a really odd extended position and wiggling his fingers <laughs> and the crowd like erupts in cheers at seeing that and starts chanting for him really strong so it's working yeah no it's whatever you're doing is working yeah for me though aside from its opening and closing the match is pretty much sleeper holds and claw holds and not a heck of a lot else like i said brown selling is cartoonish but it's still pretty good kabuki has a good look and some really great kicks and Gary Hart's fun to watch as he freaks out or tries to reach in to help his guy from time to time. But I honestly found this one a little bit boring for, for my part. And again, how in the world are we supposed to buy that no one can verify that Charlie Brown is Jimmy Valiant when Valiant's gigantic beard is sticking straight out of the mask? Yeah. Like a foot out of his head. <laughs> right. I mean, say what you will Dusty Rhodes as the, as the Midnight Rider. He has a very identical body shape. But at least maybe you could think he was the you know, assassin number one, maybe. <laughs> This show airs on Thursday, Thanksgiving Day. The next Mid-Atlantic Wrestling show airs on tape on Saturday. I don't think it's alive at this point. They're taping everything in advance. So, Jimmy Valiant appears. Because apparently his literally talent tribulation was not affected by this match, mind you. It was just like a timing thing. So, like, he had to be gone X amount of weeks or months or uh-huh. something. So, apparently that ended three days after a match in which he risked losing... And presumably being fined or punished for constantly flagrantly violating the rules of the contract, you could just wait three days and just challenge him then, but I guess it's not heroic enough. It's like the stories where the guy breaks out of prison with three days to go in his uh, (laughs) his sentence. Like, why did you do that? I was like, I really wanted that good soup from that diner down the road. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So here's where it gets a little strange. So Jimmy Valiant appears and does have a match on the next show and shows after that. However, they keep the ruse up that Charlie Brown is not to be valiant. It's not like, ha I fooled you, and then he like reveals it, and they still have the title, and I get offended. Instead, they both keep appearing for the next month and a half. 
<laughs> separately. So Jimmy Fallon does not appear with the title, and Charlie Brown appears wearing the mask with the title. Until January, where they just give up the story and vacate the title. I guess I guess if he came out on that night and just pulled his mask off, you'd be like, well, you did flagrantly violate the rules of your suspension, so we are resuspending you, maybe. But So he kind yeah. of like he's stuck now, and now he has to... <laughs> yeah, I just think it's funny that so quickly after this is big storyline and win, it's just all for nothing. Yeah, yeah, true. We go backstage again, and Caudle and Soli tell us they have to check with the timekeeper to see if Brown won the TV title. So we don't even get to find out about that yet, though, of course, as you he just did. informed us, he did. Yes. They then bring in a local radio guy who looks terrified, but actually does a pretty nice job on a little promo wishing Ric Flair luck and predicting his win. I was, I was surprised. Like, I was like, oh, this guy's got a bomb. Look at him, his eyes wide, staring at the camera. And then he cuts him like, oh. That was good. <laughs> yeah. Better than I would have done. Yeah, if you got to me in that situation, now it was completely frozen up. So, yeah. Yeah. Get yeah. more credit in the world for that. <laughs> yeah. Soli says that popular consensus so far is Flair will win, but you can't count Race out because he's won the belt seven times, and that, at this point, is the most in history. It will be shattered to a million pieces over the years to come, but very seven, so. seven is very impressive. Caudle builds up the dog collar match, and Soli has an interesting moment where he expresses gratitude to Piper for saving him when he got knocked down while filming a TV show. He's not sure who will win the match, but he's rooting for Piper. We go back to the dressing rooms, where Tony talks to Orton and Slater about getting the bounty for taking Ric Flair down, but notes that Flair is still here for the match. I, I guess, would you, should you get a refund, then, on that bounty? You would think so, but... It's a partial credit, yeah. Yeah. Orton says that that's thanks to Wahoo McDaniel, but that Slater and Orton have given Race information on Flair, and Race won't have any trouble. He and Slater celebrate hurting Wahoo's arm and say that the cage is set up to stop Orton and Slater from getting to Flair tonight, but that Race can take Flair on his own. Race says he watched Flair's interview, and he's sure that Flair is watching his, and he tells Flair that he's coming after Flair's neck to eliminate him pretty lengthy little interview here for for the amount of content that they have but they all deliver it pretty well i thought yeah i liked it at that points though it seems like it's an audiobook and he's like you remember when <laughs> yeah, true, we were true. near the camera in the other room <laughs> and the thread count of the canvas was 300 <laughs> it, it, but they do they do have a great cadence and and the rhythm uh each each person has like their own narration shtick yeah yeah true very different styles yeah they sound similar but you can tell that they're switching yeah and race again just a very considered style i think very very interesting that way i've never i've not really heard many harley race interviews i've seen him at various points over the years when he's like managing vader later on and things but i've not heard too many harley race interviews and i think they're actually quite good yeah i have two notes on this one Bob Warren Jr. sounds eerily like Sam Elliott in that promo. True. And two, it's weird that Race gives away his entire plan before the match even started. <laughs> He's like, I'm going for that neck. And Rick's probably like, oh, thank you. I will protect my neck. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Um, maybe he's just that confident. So. It, it is also interesting. Um, I think Ric Flair does this later as well. But Orton continues to call Wahoo McDaniel Wahoo McDaniels. He does, yes. And I'm pretty sure Ric Flair does it frequently as well. So I don't know if they're wrong or we're wrong i'm pretty sure that they're wrong but are they i'm pretty sure they are yes 
Wikipedia agrees with me, so oh, I'm okay. That. Well, that means everything. Yeah, and I wrote that, so clearly I'm <laughs> okay. correct. We go back to Barbara so that Dusty can actually cut his promo this time. Take two. Everyone here is watching and waiting to see the outcome of the big race flare match, but the man next to me wants to do more than watch. He wants to issue a challenge. Dusty? You know, Bubba, we're here on, a, on the biggest event in the, in the history of wrestling, Dusty Rhodes, the American Dream. Anywhere that there has been a big event in the past five, six, seven, eight years, Dusty Rhodes, the American Dream, two times world heavyweight champion, is here. They have asked me many questions tonight. I'm here celebrating this. I'm partying down, challenging the winner of this match to meet Dusty Rhodes so I can be third times World Heavyweight Champion once again. But the thing that is really pressing is who will win this match? Harley Race, the folk hero, seven times World Heavyweight Champion, a man known all over the world with stamina and just complete drive and guts right inside him to be seven times World Heavyweight Champion. And the nature boy, Ric Flair, right here in his home home place, you understand? All his home people around him, a flair for the gold, Starcade 83. For me to pick a winner, either one, I can handle the situation for the third time. I want to make that challenge right now, but I'm going to go right out on a limb, and I'm going to say just real easy that the folk hero, the legend, uh, cannot be denied, and you know who the folk hero is, Harley Race, Star Kid 83, I'm coming for you when this one's over, Daddy, the man of steel, Dusty Rose, power to this Star Kid 83 is fantastic, Barbara. The man who wins is going to have to work for the belt, but he's going to have to work a lot harder to keep it. Now back to Tom. It had to be a little awkward for Dusty. Like, I I just cut this promo. Yeah. I just, I, clearly, I did this entire thing. He gets through the entire thing. Then he has to come out and do it again. Mm-hmm. Like, hey, the mic was dead. That had to be a little awkward. I think he handles it pretty well. Yeah, yeah. You know, he, he I didn't really get a sense from him, actually, of like, oh, man, why do I have to do this a second time or anything? He's just like, okay, yeah, you know, I'll I'll uh, I'll go for it. I'm still trying to figure out multiple stamina's. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I forgot that part. That's great. <laughs> so yeah, he says stamina's with with stamina's. Yeah, that's great. Well, I know in the wrestling games now you have multiple health bars and sort of wear down. Maybe it means like that. <laughs> I don't think so. <laughs> yeah, that was that was interesting. Yeah, I thought it was a pretty decent promo. It builds up both competitors really nicely, which is always a good thing. He gets in his little his challenge, but he keeps the focus on the match pretty well and builds up just the general importance of Starcade, which, you know, definitely like I said, this is the first time anyone's been trying this, so it's important to get over, hey, this is big, guys. <laughs> Dusty's a good choice for an energetic promo, I think, and it's always entertaining to listen to him talk. Now, does he go by the Man of Steel? Apparently he does at this point. Dusty Rhodes should not call himself the Man of Steel. Steel no. Steel does not behave like Dusty Rhodes's body behaves. Maybe gold. The the man of pillows. Nah, like that. Steamboat Man of Steel. Ste- Steamboat is the Man of Steel. Holy yeah, yeah, yeah. he's that guy is ripped. Dusty, yeah. I, Dusty, I love, but yeah, you are not the Man of Steel, Dusty. <laughs> Unless he's like the phone booth that you run into. (laughs) Yeah. Otherwise, I don't know. Next up is Roddy Piper versus Greg the Hammer Valentine in a dog collar match. So, earlier in the year, Piper goes in as the U.S. champion, but he loses a match after he's hit by a ring bell and excessive blood, and eventually the match is stopped and thus awarded to uh, Greg Valentine. 
so he's ever since then he's been hanging revenge. So he apparently goes to the board of NWA and asks for this match. So this is all his idea. He wants this dog collar match, which is often called a special collar match, which again implies there's a regular kind of collar match. And then this, I don't know that there is. I'm pretty sure there's only one. Hmm. Also notable that he doesn't mention anything about the title in this, but you kind of just assume that because he's fighting the U.S. champion, and he's fighting it because the guy took the title from him, that the title's on the line. So Yeah. Valentine is introduced as the man with the bionic elbow, oddly enough. That's, that's Dusty's thing. Yeah. We just saw Dusty Rhodes, and now someone else is being called the man with the bionic elbow. Maybe Dusty's say, doing Man of Steel now, and he'll figure out to do Bionic Elbow later? I just thought that was always Dusty's thing. I'm pretty sure it was, but I I don't know. Caudle nicely builds up the size and weight of the chain, and says this is the most dangerous match in pro wrestling. Soli is worried if Piper should even be back in the ring yet after his injury. They do a really good job of building that from the very first point in the match. I will note that I watched a month of shows playing up to this, and on the very first show, there's a six-man tag match featuring Roddy Piper. Yeah. So it's not like he hasn't wrestled... Yeah, I, I think he's more saying, like, you know, in this particular type of match, no, yeah, where yeah, the great injury is... And I can understand that. It's just weird if you're going to push the idea that he wrestles yeah, at all. True. We open with a couple tug-of-war spots, and Piper gets advantage both times, whipping Valentine and starting to beat him up with the chain. Valentine comes back and starts focusing on using the chain to attack Piper's ear before he wraps the chain around Piper's eyes in a really painful-looking hold. Piper fights back, though, and wraps the chain around Valentine's mouth and nose, which looks even more painful. Those two were really nasty spots. I was like, mm-hmm. I was wincing yeah. for them, yeah. Mm-hmm. Piper uses the chain creatively in his offense, including a bit where he wraps the chain around the ring post and uses it to hold Valentine in place for some strikes. Valentine ends up bleeding, and Piper uses the chain, chairs, and the outside barricade to beat him down some more. While Piper beats Valentine up on the apron, the ref oddly tries to push him away in a no-DQ match, and Valentine nails Piper in the ear with the chain to start him bleeding too. Totally the ref's fault on that one. Yeah, 100%. He shouldn't even be in the middle there. <laughs> no, not, not at all. <laughs> Valentine keeps hitting Piper in the ear, and Piper reels, continually beaten down. Piper still won't go down fully, though and he manages to fight back as the crowd wildly cheers him on. Valentine eventually gets Piper in a sleeper, but Piper keeps his arm up when the ref goes to check if he's out, and nails Valentine with the chain to get free. Caudle and Soli nicely explain that the collar itself might have stopped the sleeper from getting locked in properly. Good little bit of commentary. Yeah. Valentine takes Piper down and goes for a jump off the second rope, but Piper pulls him down by the chain and hits him in the chest, then slugs him several times on the ground before pinning him, cleverly using the chain to wrap up his legs and get leverage to prevent a kick out. It gets the three. This is one of the matches that if you didn't live the period where this happened live, this is one where everyone tells you this is one of those matches you have to see. <laughs> there's so many there's a lot of matches about obviously. But this is any, you know, older wrestling fan is like, you gotta watch this Piper Valentine match. So for me, it's like 20 years of hype anticipation. So I was curious if it would any remotely live up to that. Mm-hmm. Honestly, it kind of did. I mean, yeah, I, I like the match a lot. I don't necessarily agree with the 80s mindset that everything is immediately better and more dramatic if you bleed in it. 
that's an overall issue side of this match. But other than that, no, I really liked it. I, I think this was the first time this is done, at least on a major stage. So they're trying this stuff. Feels like really fresh and first time. Mm-hmm. Piper is always intent, so that's always good. Yeah. Given a situation such like this, you can really deliver on that. I'm used to seeing older Piper where he's sort of turned into older cheating Piper. You know, like it's a little more playful with like poke the eye when the ref's not looking. The, and he's still intense in those, but this is younger, like hungrier, more intense. I need to win here. A lot Piper of fire was, and determination. Yes, very much so. Yeah, that's that's his Scottish Canadian blood running <laughs> through his body. It was the first collar or special collar match that I've ever seen. So it was very notable. I had to laugh at the beginning, even though it it looked great. I was like, all the other person has to do is run towards them. (laughs) Right, yeah, the tug of war is a little weird, especially when they start with their necks alone. Mm -hmm. It's better than playing headbutt champion. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, true. But no, I I enjoyed the match. It, it It was exciting. There was a lot of creativity. I mean, even by today's standards of you know showmanship, you know they mm-hmm. were there was not uh, overuse of props that were in play, so to speak. They kept it interesting, and and honestly, like I've always looked at Piper as a joke character, and he was not that in the ring. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. he's always yeah. been not not necessarily comic relief, but you know, like he, he gets portrayed a certain way. No, I I really liked it. Yeah, you're used to the the smart aleck joking Piper. Yes. And this was not that Piper. This was the intense, I'm going to kick your butt, Roddy Piper, out for blood. Yeah, I thought this was awesome. I thought this was one heck of a brutal brawl. There wasn't a lot of technical wrestling to be seen, but they got really, really creative in how they used the chain. Lots of different uses for it over the course of the match. I've seen some strap matches over the years, and some of them are good, some of them are bad. It's a similar concept for the match, but oftentimes with those, the most the strap gets involved is, you know, tug someone into you or whip them with it. With this, they're doing all sorts of stuff. They're wrapping it around their fist and punching each other. They're wrapping it around the ring post to hold the guy in, fa- in place. They're doing, you know, some of the normal strap match stuff. Even I loved Piper doing the, I'm going to tie your legs up with it. And yeah. so to stop the kick out, that was so great. Valentine was so hateable. Mm-hmm. I've seen Valentine later too, and I've never found him that interesting. In this match, I loved his work. This was terrific. He keeps going after Piper's already injured ear. You want to see Piper kick his butt. You want to see him beat the heck out of him because he just keeps doing that. Yeah. Piper did a great job selling the disorientation and the announcers really did a good job also of building up that he's lost equilibrium. He can't stand up straight, all this stuff. You know, it just makes sense. Crowd has a great reaction to Piper the whole time. They are clearly well into this match and rooting for him the whole way. It would have been easy for this match to just be them punching each other, whipping each other with the chain, and bleeding. It's not just that. There's a real story to this match. So some oddities with the ref trying to push them away from each other in a no-DQ match aside, this was really, really good. Very different. Very entertaining. Yeah, I should say there's a nice little bit when Piper has to break out of the hold. I kind of appreciate that. You know what he's going to do. You know he's going to grab the thing and hit him with it. But he doesn't just instantly like grab it coiled up and do it he really builds up as you're watching it happen yeah like in real time 
like he's grabbing one coil, he's running like he's he's trying to get out and he's hurrying, but he's not rushing himself. He's he's selling the hold at the same time, yes. so it's like I'm I'm getting the energy to even wind this around my fist so I can hit him. Yes. It's like yeah, you got a strong feeling from that, I thought. Terrific moment there. Post match. Piper celebrates, and Soli tells us he's won the title, only to correct himself a moment later that it wasn't actually on the line. Uh, <laughs> uh, that's kind of a thing with Piper over the years. Yeah. Valentine gets up and chokes Piper and decks the ref a few times as the ref tries to get him away. The crowd is absolutely rabid for Piper to come back, but Piper just can't fight back anymore, and Valentine even hangs him by the chain before finally being hustled out of the ring by the ref. We cut backstage to Caudle and Soli, who compliment Piper's determination, but then a massive, massive cheer erupts, and we cut back to see Piper standing in the ring and swinging the chain around victoriously. Caudle questions if more permanent damage has been done to his ear, and Soli says Piper is a man and five yards wide. <laughs> yeah, right? What? <laughs> That's I got. That's got to be an expression. I think I have heard that expression, mm. but I have no idea what that means. I can I can't answer Soli's question for him. By the way, so in the storyline from the previous match was that the match was stopped with bleeding as around the year. There was no actual damage other than obviously scarring related to that. Mm-hmm. However, for all the damage in this match, he legitimately lost in between fifty to seventy five percent of the hearing in that ear. Wow, that's from this match. That's not from, from this the, match. This not match. From, yes. Oh wow! So it is from the. So he, yes, he did act back to get serious to answer that. Ah, jeez, wow. So suffering for your art. Yeah, absolutely. We go backstage again, and Bob Cottle throws to Barbara, but instead we get Tony with Ric Flair. This show, I swear. <laughs> uh, Ric Flair is backstage with Tony and Wahoo McDaniel. Or McDaniels. <laughs> Plural. Flair says he doesn't like what Slater and Orton did to Wahoo McDaniel, and he says he wants Race to try his best to stop Flair, but he's ready. He keeps calling Wahoo McDaniel McDaniels, much like Orton did earlier, but tells Wahoo if he needs anything, Wahoo can call on Flair. In a few moments, Race won't have any help. Wahoo builds up Flair's chances and says that Flair is ready and he'd bet on Flair. Wahoo says the belt is coming back to Charlotte Flair. She she wasn't even born yet. That is true. Thought another fairly sedate Ric Flair promo, and he actually seems to stumble over his lines a couple times on it, but different environment, I guess, or a yeah. big night. It's just rare to hear Ric Flair have to repeat himself on something. Yeah. Now we go to Barbara, and she's with Don Kernoodle, another awesome name. She asks him to predict the winner of the tag title match. Don says they're both great teams, and it'll be a good match. He is nice enough to actually predict a winner of Flair versus Race. He picks Flair. <laughs> I just love that. He's just like, well, it'll be a good match. It's like, she just kind of moves on. <laughs> yeah. That well is dry. Yeah. Next up is Ricky, or rather Rick Steamboat, and Jay Youngblood versus the Briscoe brothers, Jack and Jerry. This is for the NWA World Tag Team Championship. And it's with special referee Angelo Mosca. He had the wounded arm from earlier in the show. And uh, Latin blood in an uproar. Mm. 
So this has been an ongoing thing with these teams. They've been fighting over titles back and forth for months. They traded them at least once or twice between each other. On top of that, they did a weird angle within the last couple of shows where the Briscoes basically claimed that they're not going to show up for the show. They didn't feel like they their titles there. At which point, Jimmy Crockett appears and explains that he bought out all these people's contracts, so apparently he controls them for the Starcade show, and thus he's forcing them to be in the match. So it's kind of a weird business approach to this. Like, I own your contract, so I can tell you what to do. You gotta get there somehow, I guess, which is kind of an odd, oddly uh, litigious way, I guess, to get there. Yeah, the announcers do uh, comment on that a few times over the the introductions. It takes a surprisingly long time for the match introductions to start up. I'm not quite sure what was going on, but there's, it's silent for a while. Jerry Briscoe, impressively, stands straight up on the top turnbuckle the entire time, just like no wavering or anything whatsoever. No. That took some balance. <laughs> Jack Briscoe looks like Scott Bakula, which I'm okay with because I like Scott Bakula. Yeah. Steamboat is in first, with Jack and Jerry trading off every few moves, but Steamboat largely fending them off. Jack gets Steamboat in a hammerlock at one point, but Steamboat just backflips straight over Jack's head and arm drags him down. Jack just sits there in pure astonishment and then kind of walks over, stunned, to tag Jerry. Jerry gets a few good hits in on Steamboat, but Steamboat counters an attempt to slam him into the turnbuckle and gets the tag to Jay Youngblood. Youngblood and Steamboat trade off to keep control, until Jack drops Steamboat on his neck on the ropes, and Steamboat goes down like he was shot by a cannonball. Jack and Jerry keep trading off to keep Steamboat reeling, with Jerry hitting a beautiful underhook suplex at one point, but Steamboat keeps fighting out of their holds. Eventually, Jerry gets a key lock on Steamboat's arm and nearly gets him pinned a couple times, but Steamboat fights to his feet with the hold still on and lifts Jerry straight into the air from the mat overhead to slam him down like some kind of backdrop powerbomb. Amazing, with a huge pop from the crowd. Steamboat tags Youngblood, but after some early offense, Jack takes Youngblood down with a suplex, and he and Jerry go to work on Youngblood. Jerry complains to Mosca after a two-count and gets aggressive, but Mosca just shoves him down. Youngblood gets the tag to Steamboat, and Steamboat uses chops and jumping punches to take Jerry down, while Mosca catches Jack trying to interfere. A few quick tags and double teams from Steamboat and Youngblood, and finally Steamboat press slams Youngblood onto Jerry for the three. I thought it was really good in that they had a pretty clear story going here, which is that the Briscoes are the strong, technical, albeit underhanded, tag team. They have all the technical skill to pull you down in moves, and hit you with a backstar and hit you low, whereas Steamboat and Youngblood's story is that, while they're technically efficient as well, their big thing is athleticism. They can sort of jump and push their way out of these moves and counter them. Mm-hmm. And ultimately, their tag team continuity is more in hitting double team moves rather than constant trade out like the Briscoes. Yeah. And yeah, this one definitely delivered for me. Steamboat, it's it's hard to find a bad Steamboat match. But yeah, that was, that was really good. I honestly can't think of any critique on Steamboat, actually. He's like graceful. I, I don't know that. <laughs> yeah. It's just yeah. It's a good, no, it's, it's a good description. Yeah. I, yeah. He's. It's an effortless execution every time, uh, just about, unless he's selling something. Yeah. Um, like cookies or, you know, <laughs> or t- tickets to the policeman's ball or whatever. But I think that, like Al said it, right? It's pure athleticism, pure talent uh, versus some tried and true uh, 
partnership that the Briscoes have going for them. Like I recognize the the Briscoe name. Um, I mean, it reminds me of like tires or something. But uh, um, <laughs> well, they, they they did have a body shop, and I think they still do. The one brother is still around. Jack Briscoe still runs it, I believe. So it might be what you're thinking of, actually. Yeah. Okay. Um, <laughs> it's in the Tampa area. Yeah. Oh, okay. So <laughs> there you go. There's a reason why that name's stuck around, or, or the you know they they are iconic in some way. So they're very technical and they work well together. But I don't know. It's just there's just no comparison between like talent and skill. Yeah. Ricky Steamboat is awesome. He is always precise, crisp, and powerful in every move, and he does a great job in peril too. Struggling hard, but always keeping your hopes up for a comeback. He pulls off some absolutely amazing moves in this match and just looks impressive the whole way through. Like I said, wonderful combination of strength and agility. He can pull off some major power spots, but he can also move with grace. And the crowd loves him. The Briscoe brothers are a terrific heel team. They have some very nice moves and some holds that made them look like a dangerous challenge to the faces. You you buy it when they put on a on, on some kind of lock or hold. Absolutely. It yeah. really looks right. You really feel like people have to struggle their way free from their holds, and that's appreciated. Great timing from them. And there were points, actually, when they switched out so fast, I actually wasn't sure which Briscoe was in the ring. And they're not particularly identical looking. It's no. just they, they move so fast sometimes. Jay Youngblood was a serviceable face as well. He worked well with Steamboat and did some pretty good fast teamwork sequences with him. Yeah, really, really fun tag match. It got time to develop, but it had a good, quick pace the whole way through. Although it's like this match was, I think, two or three times as long as the first couple of tag matches. Mm -hmm. But for me, this felt way faster to watch. It was really easy and maintained my interest just really well the whole way through. I will say I, won't, I'm, yeah, I will not critique the match because it's really good. I will, as a side note, it's kind of weird that we have Mark and Jay Youngwood on the same show. Yeah. But they're not a tag team together on this show. Right. So, I mean, I would definitely not want to take Steam out of the match in any way, shape, or form. But at the same time, the story of the Youngblood against the Briscoes would be interesting. And I'm guessing that may happen at some point in the future with yeah, the Yeah, probably. But, yeah, it's... That, that's, that's like the only critique I can really give is like, and that's really not a critique at all. So Well, and apparently Jay and Steamboat have been working together constantly because yes, this is true. their fifth tag title win. Really, really great match. Just absolutely terrific. And it's always a joy to watch Steamboat work. Post-match, Jack knocks Steamboat and Mosca away and puts the figure four on Youngblood. I guess everyone's doing that move now, as I said. Jerry splashes Youngblood while he's in the hold and then goes up top but Mosca catches him coming down, and they fall on Jack. Steamboat comes back in, and he and Youngblood fight off the Briscoe brothers, then celebrate with Mosca in the ring to huge cheers. Mosca, I will note, doesn't quite know how to get them in position to do the holding your arms up in victory pose. Mm -hmm. And it looks a little bit awkward, but the crowd loves it anyway. There's a kind of odd bit here that just must be a thing that people were doing at the time where steamboat will point to parts of the crowd and everybody calls out what sounded like you over and over i'm not quite sure what was going on but huh. you know it looked fun yeah sure <laughs> they had a good time so i watched the as i said i watched the saturday tape show and angel moscow appears and wrestles in a six-man tag match and if you're wondering no he does not have his arm wrap whatsoever so apparently that visit wound healed within two days he's wolverine I guess so, yeah. 
if Thanksgiving Day is the high point for the Youngblood Steamboat team, then unfortunately the next major holiday is kind of the opposite. The NWA is holding a house show on Christmas Day. So that sucks for the wrestlers just in general. But it gets worse. So Steamboat goes to Jim Crockett and announces that he's going. He's planning to retire. Obviously, that does not last because I'll see him several times throughout these shows. Yeah. But he announces he's planning to retire. So Jim Crockett then strips the duo of the tag team since one of them's gone and sets up, of course, a tournament, which leads to Mark and Jay Youngblood teaming together. Oh, okay. I guess short title rings aren't just a modern thing. Yeah. Sometimes they happen back then, too. To be fair, I don't think the plan was to strip them the title True. at that point. It was, I think Steamboat kind of threw that on them. But don't worry, he'll be back at the next show, so... We're doing it even more sort of sad. He didn't like he if he stayed gone a couple of years, it would have been bad for the business. But at least it would have been better, slightly better for Youngblood because he's like, okay, at least he's gone for more than six. Yeah, months. yeah, true. But yeah, he's back within a year. So next up, we get basically an extended intermission. Strangely enough, we get the credits at this point, even though there's a match left to go, and Soli praises everyone involved in the show like it's the end of the show. Soli is, of course, particularly intent on making sure that we know that the cameraman 75 feet up in the air deserves our praise. Also, much like Charlie Brown, the lighting company is downtown to Soli, so that must just be a thing that I'm not aware of. There's also a very interesting comment. Soli thanks, I think he said, Wayne McDaniel for the slow-mos and instant replays. Um, tell me if I'm wrong. Because I might be just losing my mind and not remembering this stuff, but I don't remember seeing any slow mos or instant replays at all on this show. No, unless they make it in the final video package, and this case he's praising them in advance. Yeah, that, that'd be weird. And again, maybe it's a WWE Network version thing, but to me, it feels like Soli is praising the guy for something that no one's actually doing, which is weird. Yeah, it's just kind of odd to have the closing credits for the show well before the actual end of the show. Yeah, my best guess at the time was maybe they figured people aren't, aren't going to keep watching after the match, which, if that was the case, you don't run as long as they do after the match yeah. with stuff. Yeah, it's, it's with this and them starting the show just unceremoniously in the middle of a match, it's it's kind of an odd structure to it. Yeah, We go to Tony back in the dressing room. And I noticed that Flair now has his sparkly robe on. It's blue and silver, a nice one. Tony calls Charlie Brown over. <laughs> uh, Charlie energetically runs up, kisses Tony, and says that he did it for the people, for Jimmy Valiant, and himself, and runs off screaming, all right, all right. <laughs> um, certainly energetic? <laughs> yeah. I do like, like you said, he's he's clearly maintaining the uh, perception that he and Jimmy Valiant are different people. Yes. <laughs> Sounds like it. Yeah, it's the original Mr. America. I see yeah, that, yeah, yeah, I guess so. After Charlie Brown, Piper comes over. Charlie Brown from out of town, certainly a very happy man, and this man's a very happy man, but he's also a man that's very, very cut and very bruised this time, Roddy. Come here, look close. Come here. Hey, Valentine. Is that the best you can do, huh? You say, you say your strategy was to take away all my hair. And you see what you forgot is you got one more year to go. I beat you fast, 
Fifth Star Game 1983. The next thing, Valentine, that United States heavyweight title brother, that's mine. I, I thought the one mere ear, one more ear to go line was great. That's, that's classic Piper. That yeah. is classic, just brash uh, hero talk Piper. That's really, really good. Speaking of Piper, mm-hmm. you're wondering, um, because his title match against Greg Valentine, that doesn't happen because he jumps immediately to WBF in 1984. <laughs> Less than two months, he's out of here. His ear was literally injured and he lost more than half his hearing in that one ear. So they keep him out of actually wrestling for at least at least a few months. They bring him in. He manages people like Hattie Broke in his business. He was a manager initially, hmm. back in the set back in the seventies. Did not know that. Yes, I watched a documentary. It's very interesting. Okay, so he was a heel manager for a bunch of people. One of them is notable for being Doctor D. David Schultz, arguably fighting Rufus R. Freight Train Jones for longest, most confusing names. <laughs> the least is in different order. Da- Dr. D. David Schultz is notable for being backstage around the first WrestleMania, so about a year and a half from now. I think it's December 84 when this happens. John Stossel is back there working for a news agency about how re- other wrestling is real or not. He receives to tell Schultz that wrestling is not real. Whereupon Schultz slaps him twice in the side of his head, right against his ear, and he falls down. Sasa would proceed to sue him, apparently take a settlement of $425,000, because he had, quote, eight weeks of pain in his ears. Wow. Which I could live with for that much money. <laughs> I don't know. I could buy enough aspirin, I think, to live with it. Honestly. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's 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 sad that we don't get a follow up on Piper versus Valentine. That's actually, after seeing that match, I would love to see another match in that feud. That's was super intense and really really good. I could see them having a good follow up, but yeah, unfortunately, it is not to be in part because that match was so intense. I think. <laughs> yeah, who knows? Given his longevity, do you think he jumped to WWF because they didn't give him a shot or? I don't believe that's the case. What Vince McMahon was doing is throwing money around like there was no end to it. Which is, that's how he basically ended the NWA as a powerful organization. He'd go to the AWA and say, who's your biggest star? Oh, it's this Terry Hulk Hogan guy. I'm going to buy his contract up. And now he's gone. And they slowly fade away because they lose, like, they use a couple people. I think he started to slaughter as well. He yeah. goes, he goes, Mr. To- Perfect is originally from there. Too, yes, and, he was yeah. the AWA champion. That's true. And he would just go company to company doing so. So one of the places he went was Mid-Atlantic Wrestling. He went to Piper, paid much of money. Well, Piper would, will come back to WCW. We'll see him in about more than a decade from now. Yeah. But yeah, there's no immediate follow-up. There's no lengthy U.S. title run that follows this or the match is Darkade. It's just the appearance end of it for 1996. That's a real shame on that front, I think. Yeah. Uh, we get one more interview. Jay Youngblood and Steamboat come in. And Jay says that they took the title for the record fifth time, and they'll take on all comers. Steamboat calmly explains that a good wrestler has to adapt to different styles, and they've beaten all different combinations. They can adapt, and that's why they came home with the gold. I think, again, Steamboat comes off pretty good here in promo ability. It's surprising, because I've never known him as a particularly decent promo guy, but yeah. he, he does a good job of kind of a reasoned approach to their victory, and it makes sense. Not particularly energetically delivered, but mm-hmm. you know it, it's it's fine. I think. I think the problem long term for Steamboat is that 
most people, when they think of promos for him, promo battles or interactions, it's him and Ric Flair. True. When he's at peak Ric Flairness, or even later in his career, you'll see him in 93, 94, when it's young, upcoming Steve Austin, who, while he's not Stone Cold, he is still very much the Steve Austin you expect. True. 90% of that. So, them being really energetic and really passionate maybe makes him look worse by comparison, which is unfortunate because he is actually really good. Yeah, I can see that, where this night is, people are fairly sedate that you'd expect to to not be. But yeah, I think he does a respectable job with, with yeah. his promos. I'm just trying not to make uh, puns about him running out of steam. That's the, <laughs> that's the main goal, and uh, I think I accomplished that. Okay, until this moment. Yes. And any Steamboat Willie jokes you want to make? Nope. Okay, just checking. We go back to Cottle and Sully, and they recap what we've seen a bit and build up Steamboat, Jay Youngblood, and Piper, while mentioning that the Briscoe brothers might have a rematch clause. They say that they'll go back to Barbara, but she's not there yet. This show. (laughs) Yeah. Cottle and Sully have to talk a bit more, so they quickly wish Caribbean fans well and talk about Abdullah and Cologne a bit, then about Dusty's earlier promo, and then they're interrupted as Barbara is ready now. She's with Dusty. Dusty asks some fans who they think will win the world title match. They predict Flair, and Dusty says, whoever wins, they're going to have to meet Dusty Rhodes, the Man of Steel. Once again, no. (laughs) Cadmium, maybe. (laughs) Dusty says that he's going to pick a winner, but then says he won't tell us who it is. Didn't he already pick race? He did. He he picked race. You don't get to tell us you're not going to pick the winner if you already told us your choice. I also like how he's somewhat dismissive of their the lady's uh, call. Yeah. They're like, Rick Flair! And he's like, well, whoever it is. Yeah. Yeah. Like, you clearly don't believe them for yeah. some reason. Yeah, I like that. It's just like, yeah, they're like, Rick Flair, Rick Flair. One yeah. of them seems to still be trying to talk when he jumps in. Yeah. He's like, well, whoever, I said, whoever it is. <laughs> it's like, okay. Dusty arguing against Flair. But yeah, another like just nice, energetic little dusky, dusty segment. He's always good for some fun. Maybe the audience is voting who will who will win. They haven't decided at this point. <laughs> and um, considering the show is named a flare for the gold, I highly doubt that they haven't decided that at this point. But although it, I, I mean before, but it's a flare as in a signal it's, flare. It's F L A R E. Yeah, not so. A, I, I the one I don't know why it's called that, not a flare for the gold. Yeah, it is odd. Maybe they thought it was too obvious. They're like, well, you can spell flair differently, can't you? <laughs> well, yeah, you can spell it F-L-E-H-R, which is how Ric Flair's actual last name is spelled. Yeah. Yes. But they didn't. No. No. We go back to Cottle and Soli, and they finally explain that there's so much talking going on because the crew is busy setting up the cage around the ring to prevent interference and prevent anyone from trying to escape during the title match. Then we get the national anthem. Kind of an odd place in the show for that to happen, but... Okay. It's by James Tiny Weeks. The lights go out, which I thought was a technical glitch, but maybe it's just to spotlight the flag. Though they also seem to have some trouble getting a spotlight on Weeks, so maybe it was a glitch after all, and they just covered it with the spotlight on the flag. Final match is Ric Flair versus Harley Race in a cage match for the NWA World Heavyweight Championship with special referee Gene Kaniski. I'm, I probably butchered how you say that. It's close enough. Kaninsky? Kaninsky? Yeah. Kaninsky? I think it's Kaninsky. Yeah, it's something like that. 
back in June, Ric Flair's first title run ends at a house show to Harley Race. In July, Harley Race, knowing he has a future title match against Ric Flair, decides he needs to avoid that at all costs because he's a seven-time world champion. It's not a tough fight, but, you know, he needs to pay people to beat him up so he doesn't have to have a match at all. That's just the kind of guy he is. So he does, and then it works for about two months, and then Ric Flair comes back. Weirdly, the last thing you see of Flair on the TV show four days before this is Ric Flair does an in-ring training segment where he's in, like, his gym clothes, and he sort of, like, spars with three other wrestlers. Huh. It's not a match. It's like a friendly sparring with wrestlers of three different sizes to show how well-rounded well and versatile it is. It's interesting, but it's just weird that it's not, like, a big Ric Flair promo, and it's not a big Ric Flair match. He doesn't, like, you know, fight, like, Slater or Orton to show he can take them out or something. It's just, here's me training in the middle of the ring, just... For fun, guys. Interesting. Yeah, it's not bad. It's just kind of confusing. We didn't mention it before, but... So they had talked about having a Starcade show in the build-up to this, obviously. However, they do a big press conference thing about a month and a half before the show actually airs, where they fly all the NWA board of directors for each territory to a lovely Hyatt Regency in nearby Tampa. <laughs> to a lovely hotel, I'm sure. I think that hotel was also the Punisher, but I'm not sure on that one. I feel like it was. And then announced that Jim Crockett Promotions won the right to host the NWA World Title match, which means they are hosting Starcade. Okay. Good for them. Yeah. <laughs> it's just a weird little business thing to it. This is like the biggest show of the year. We're going to announce which territory gets to host it. Yeah. I mean, I guess, honestly, in this era, that probably was a pretty big announcement. It doesn't no, feel yeah. like it to us now because there's, you know, really one territory, the WWF, and then a few that are kind of trying to start up and or keep themselves going. But yeah, I would imagine, actually, that might have been something where like people were like, oh, where was, where's it going to be? Who's who's going to be in control of it? You know, yeah, um, no, with, with the, all the different NWA territories at the time. Sure. The lights go out again, and we hear the sunrise fanfare from Strauss's Also Sprock Zarathustra. Flair, and only Flair, gets entrance music on this show. He also gets a disco ball and some pyro. The arena is almost totally dark, though, and it takes a while before we see Flair due to some of the pyro. The lights finally come back up to fully show him in his blue and sparkling silver robe. Definitely gives the feeling that this is the most important guy on this show. Oh, yeah. The crowd cheers mightily for Flair, and then erupts in booze as Race appears, in his more traditional sort of boxing robe, though it is a little bit strange how it's half red and half blue. Yeah. Not quite sure why, but it doesn't look bad, it's just, no. it's a weird design. Well, not a little miscue, because we get this big pomp and circumstance, just without the song pomp circumstance, for Ric Flair's entrance. And then it pans over to where I assume Race was to come out through the door, but it's like slightly overhead, and he's already just staying there waiting for his key yeah, to walk further. True. So he's just kind of already there. But I don't know. That may be intentional, but it didn't feel intentional. Yeah. Well, I think him standing there for a little while is intentional. It seems like, you know, the crowd's booing, and he's just kind of like soaking it up and sure. looking at all of them and all. He slowly walks down to the ring and stares Flair down before he finally gets in. We get some more audio glitches as the ring announcer introduces Flair, Race, and special ref, former world champion Gene Kanitsky. On the last show before, 
they announced that Harley Race had specifically requested they have a special ref because this match is so important. And they picked a previous former world champion who unfortunately completely escapes me now. Not that important. Because on the same show, within an hour, they then announced that they discovered a conflict of interest between said former champion and Harley Race. And that apparently the two of them own a restaurant and a ranch together. <laughs> which oh. is a weird combination of things to own. So they announced, well, we'll, we'll tell you who the new ref is later. And by later, they meant right before this match started. Yeah. You gotta get, you got get the food for the restaurant somewhere. Yeah. It makes sense. They're, they're, they're managing their own supply chain. Yeah. Dressing. Yeah. Oh, so you mean they grow the vegetables at the ranch and then they ride the horses to deliver them? No. Sh- sure. Yeah. You're eating trigger, Al. Sorry. Oh. <laughs> Soli builds up that race has been pro wrestling since he was 17. But Flair was an amateur wrestler in high school and in college, so they have different but equivalent levels of experience. Flair dominates early on, and the crowd cheers loudly. Flair works a headlock, but Race rolls him into a pin attempt. They fight over the headlock, and Kaniski accuses Flair of choking Race, but Flair says it's on the chin. Race takes control and starts going after Flair's head and neck, including leaning hard on Flair's throat with his knee. One punch in particular gets a great, oh, God, reaction from Flair. (laughs) Really, really loud. Oh, yeah. Flair uh, selling for the 73rd row there. Yes. Or maybe the cameraman. That's 75 feet in the air. He wants to make sure he hears it. Thanks, Brooke. (laughs) Race hits the pile driver on Flair, but doesn't immediately go for the pin, hitting an elbow drop instead. The announcers note that he's not going quickly to pins after big moves. Race goes to using the cage as a weapon against Flair, and Flair can't fight back, rolling around on the ground and holding his head between the blows. He gets brief comebacks when Race argues with Kaniski, but Race keeps taking control and gets him bleeding badly after more cage shots. Finally, after a whip to the turnbuckle, Flair is able to take back control and show Race how it feels to hit the cage head first, getting him bleeding too. He hits some big moves, including a pile driver of his own, and the announcers note that he goes for pins very quickly after each move, intent on putting Race away. The match goes back and forth, and both competitors continue using the cage in the face of warnings from Ganiski. Flair's face is a mask of blood, but he gets the figure four. The overhead camera angle looks great here. Race turns it over, and Flair manages to turn it again, but they end up in the ropes and Flair has to break. Soli tells us that he's only seen a successful reversal of the figure four once before. Keep watching, man. You'll see it in almost every Flair match from now on. Race takes back control, but the figure four has done its damage, and his leg gives him trouble. Both Race and Flair are slow to recover from every move. Eventually, Race nails Kaniski with a headbutt. I wasn't really clear if it was accidental or not. And he throws Flair into the corner, but Flair uses elbows and chops to push him back, climbs up top, and dives off onto Race, rolling through and covering Race for the three as Kaniski wakes up in time for the pin. The crowd shrieks in joy at that finish. I thought it was really good. Um, they had the sort of pacing and clear division of the match pretty well. It's kind of like what I had with the Ord Slater, Wahoo, and uh, Youngblood match, but I felt it was a little more balanced. I was, and it was weird because you think with four people you could trade that off easier, but two people managed to do it better, so go mm-hmm. figure. But yeah, I mean, they, the story is pretty clear, as they, as they mentioned the commentary you mentioned here, that race race is overconfident and sort of I must say, he's definitely aggressive, but he's vindictive is what I, was, yeah. I would say. Because he'll hit a move and once you suffer, 
and maybe maybe he hopes you, you kick out rather and uh, don't get pinned, so you can do more damage to you and keep attacking you. Yeah. Whereas Flair's goal is, I gotta take this guy down, and I gotta win the match, and that's a very face thing to do. It's a very yeah. good thing to do, because obviously he has hatred in his heart for Harley Race to try to take them out of the sport, but he doesn't get so aggressive at that that he forgets his goal. Right. Yeah, it goes really well with what Race said in his promos that I'm I'm going to hurt you. I know where you're hurt. I'm, I'm going to make use of those injuries. And with him saying, I want to eliminate Ric Flair. Yes. This, he's not trying to win the match alone. He's trying to make sure Flair never comes back. Exactly. So. I will say it's weird that the ref is constantly like questioning the hold and questioning this and that. When they're in a cage match, there are no rules. See, I think that's kind of the thing is they don't actually ever say that this is a no DQ match. They say it's a cage match, but at the but I think all the build up around the cage match is just this is a cage match to stop there being outside interference. I'm not sure that it's a cage match in the traditional cage match sense where it's also definitely a no DQ match. Mm. I actually kind of liked the constant um asking in part because even if it makes the rules a little questionable to me, it does a good job of building up how badly Flair wants this. Mm-hmm. That there's points where he gets asked by the ref, hey, are you choking him? Or gets warned, "Don't no close fist, Flair. Or gets yelled at for using the cage as well. And it takes, like, in every case, Race is doing something bad first. But it shows you Flair getting increasingly aggressive as, as the match goes on. And it really builds that up, I think. I, the other thing I was going to say is that the the ref goes down, looks at him like he's down on his knees, and then Race is standing right next to him for Flair's cross body. And I just assumed that Race would trip over the ref while taking the move. That's why he's standing in that exact position. Yeah. But then he just sort of falls over next to him, and the ref gets up and is like, oh, I'm fine now. Yeah, <laughs> that was a little odd. I don't know if that's a miscue or that just I assumed a spot was was meant to be there and it wasn't. Yeah. But all signs pointed to that spot and there's no payoff to it. Yeah, it feels like that should be the spot because otherwise there's no real reason the ref has to go down. Yeah, so, it's true. Yeah. I'm going to go back uh, a little bit further. Uh, I, I, they talk about no interference. I, I don't remember them mentioning anything about it being uh, no holds barred. Uh, yeah. Um, that's possible. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's just the assumption with a cage match because that's normally what it is, but in this case I think the idea is it's not necessarily no holds barred. Well, the the champ that's defending his title, I think there's some actual desperation like even if it's, you know, part of the narrative or whatever, maybe he really wants to hold on to the title at least subconsciously. <laughs> yeah. Like, you know, uh maybe after winning it so many times, you know, he can see Flair's this other rising star and he's got other people cheering for him and Dusty's saying, "No, no, don't <laughs> don't, don't give it away, you know, or don't uh yeah, don't build yeah. the hype too much." Maybe he sees this as a uh a point where he has to step down. <laughs> I can see that. Uh, not not just as a, you know, for this this match, but as a overall narrative. I can see that. And, you know, kind of a, I'm going to go out. If I'm going to go out, I'm going to go out in a blaze of glory. Show off all my stuff. Make it look good. Yeah, I mean, but prolong the match because this might be the last time I'm in an event like this for... <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Um, with, with Race, I know he's he does things later, but... 
I yeah, I don't know if he ever is at the top of the card again after this point. I might know some things. Okay, we'll we'll get to that in a bit. Yeah, but yeah, I, I think this was a was a pretty good match. It feels very very intense. It feels very brutal at times. Maybe not quite as brutal as the Piper and Valentine match, but uh, you know, there's very few things that are as brutal as the <laughs> Piper and Valentine match. So thank God, yeah. Yeah, Flair is a very good babyface in the match, but also has that that complexity to his character, I think, of him wanting the match and him wanting to beat Race and him being increasingly incensed by Race, you know, slamming his face into the cage time and again that he starts doing that back and you get this kind of vengeful side to him in the match too, which I thought was was a really interesting thing. Flair is particularly great at selling in this match. He just looks exhausted at points. And there's one point in particular that I loved where he's down on the ground and Race grabs him and starts to lift him up and Flair tries to punch him. And he he just, he has zero power in, in his in his arms. He just has this, this really slow kind of like moving through liquid kind of punch that it just, it looks perfect for this. I want to fight, but I just can't fight. It just makes it clear Rick's a master of his craft. The ending was a little bit awkward, like you were set out. I'm mm. not sure why the ref bump was necessary, unless, like you said, maybe it was that they were supposed to go end over end over Kaniski, but just a little bit awkward. Flair's crossbody off the top seemed like it was aimed maybe a little bit off, too, that he kind of hits him half crossbody and half leg scissor takedown, eh. uh, which which looks a little bit weird, but it, it still works. It is really weird to see Ric Flair, of all people, win with a top rope move, Yeah, considering what will go on to happen for most of Ric Flair's career when he tries to go up on the top yeah. rope. It's always his, oh no, I'm getting slammed off the top rope spot. So I guess maybe that's why he keeps going up, is I won my second title that way. Yeah. I really want to call out also how really, really good Gordon Soley was during this match. He's a good announcer anyway, but he really shines here. He makes sure to build up how the match is wearing the competitors down, how their injuries are piling up, how they're interfering with their moves, Race's injured leg after the figure four, Flair having trouble seeing through the blood. I thought that was a great point. Things like that really make the match feel so much more real, and they help viewers understand why each move matters. Post-match, Flair celebrates, exhausted, as Angelo Mosca comes in to lift him and carrying him around. Lots of other wrestlers from across the show come to celebrate with Flair, too, with Ricky Steamboat helping Flair put the title belt on. Flair's wife joins him in the ring for a hug and a kiss, and the crowd does the you chant again, led by the wrestlers in the ring. I guess that's just the thing at this point. Flair gets the microphone to thank the crowd. Jesus. Thank you. These words. I don't really know how to begin. Thank you very, very much. To try and to try and explain what a major what a major part all of you have played in this. To try and explain what a major part all of you have played in this 
would take a long time, but I want you to know that each and every one of you that are here tonight, and each and every one of you that were out in the closed circuit locations, this is the greatest night of my life, and I can't thank you. Thank you very, very much. It's a short promo, but for me it felt wonderfully genuine. Flair has tears in his eyes as he speaks. It's touching to see this night has clear meaning for him. I think this is one of those points where for me it felt like you got to look behind the curtain for a little bit and saw the the real Ric Flair. Yeah. Not the character Ric Flair thanking us, but or, or thanking the fans. It's This is the real Ric Flair thanking the fans. There's very few moments like that over the course of wrestling, but they're always really special when you, you get to see the actual emotion, the actual feelings of this guy. It felt like a, a pure moment. I like the little bit where this is the wife and then she has to wipe the his butt off her like nose. Oh, yeah, think. yeah. The announcers even point that out for a moment. I don't know if I would like that part. <laughs> I think it's kinda it's a funny little bit of realism to that because Yeah, yeah. Like she I don't think she's thinking that was gonna happen and then she's like, Oh wait, I have the butt on my face. Well why did she leave though? Did she just have to be somewhere else or she goes back to the crowd. She sits down in the crowd again, but, but why not yeah, I don't know exactly why they didn't just keep her in there. That was kinda weird. So, in the immediate aftermath of this, Ric Flair becomes sort of the face of the end of the way. His job is to go territory to territory, you know, show up, lose a match, and then find a way to keep the title and move to the next territory. You, you know, you pay the extra money to get him to hang around for a month at your shows. It's notable that from his first title reign, which ends abruptly, set up this match. Um, to the second match, it's a long stretch. It's, you know, between June and November. However, between the second and third, officially and unofficially, it's actually not quite that long. Race doesn't come back to wrestling while he takes some time off. However, they do an international tour and try and follow this you know, across the globe in a Jones style with the map and the dots yeah. and everything. So they do a house show event in uh, New Zealand <laughs> which Ric Flair loses the title to Harley Race. That is in March, <laughs> I believe. Yeah, ever in March. And a few, uh, about a week later, they're in Singapore, home of uh, Great Kabuki, apparently. <laughs> okay. Which Ric Flair went back the title. Huh. Now, I, I mentioned there being official and unofficial wins because this apparently was not a officially sanctioned win by the NWA. Uh. The way it worked back then, the NWA had a board of directors. Even if your local guy, your regional guy, had the title, the board directors decides, basically decides how long your title reign is. Like, if they think you're drawing, if they think, you know, you coming to their territory is helping them or not. Anytime someone goes, hey, I think so-and-so has won the title, the NWA board directors would then vote. So, while you win the title in the ring, you, you mostly win it in a boardroom among a bunch of guys in suits you'll never meet. So that's sort of the background for this. They decided to do a title swap to sort of build up how important the tour is. But the NWA does not recognize the title. Title switch, rather. And apparently WWE still does not officially list this as one of his title reigns. (laughs) I guess if the official body at the time said it wasn't, then there you go. But that's part of the Ric Flair's 16-time world champion in giant air quotes. Yes. Thing comes from. 
the other thing is that in May, while still champion, having got his title back, Ric Flair goes to World Class Championship Wrestling, or WCCW in Texas, with unfortunately the most unlucky family in the world, Levon Eriks, mm-hmm. who started out with five sons as great possible wrestlers. Ultimately, there's only one of them left, unfortunately. It was a rough several years for them. They unfortunately started a sad tradition of holding tribute shows every time one of the kids dies. And as part of that, this was for, I want to say it was for, I think it was David Von Erich. They had tribute show for him in May. Rick Flair goes and loses the title to Kerry Von Erich. Where that, that is an official title win, and or title loss rather. And he wins it back 18 days later at another show. And his title then continues through to the next show. Okay. So it's weird. There's an unofficial title swap and official title swap all within a six-month period of his second glorious title win. Huh. Yeah. Weird little asterisks there. Yeah. So there's still like 14 minutes left in the show. Yep. But there's no more matches. Nope. Instead, we get an assortment of recaps and interviews. Uh, we get a celebration in the dressing room for Flair winning the title, in which Flair thanks everybody, especially Steamboat, and everybody pours champagne on Flair's bloody head. I'm not convinced that Jim Crockett Promotions' medical crew is properly trained. Tony also gets splashed, which is pretty funny. He's all mussed up later for, for the rest of his appearances on the show. To be fair, you put alcohol in a wound, so there you Yeah, go. yeah, yeah. Dusty interrupts to congratulate Flair and to challenge him personally. Flair acknowledges the challenge, but he wants to celebrate tonight, for now. Caudill and Soli then have to stall a bit before they can throw it to Barbara for a brief interview with Race. They amusingly spend several minutes talking about what Race will probably say and their impressions of Race as a former champion and how he's a proud man but will be unbowed and yada 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 because they're clearly stalling for time because Barbara is not able to get there yet. They kind of go on for quite a while, and then we do get a brief interview with Harley Race. Race says that he's been champ seven times, and only Flair, Rhodes, and those of that caliber can stand in his way of taking the title for the eighth time. Race says he's going to make Flair's life hell until he gets another shot. Good, kind of dejected, but unbroken interview from Race. Yeah. Though there's lots of audio problems on this one. It feels like they get really close to losing the promo. Yeah. But manage to keep it going yeah race race again for me kind of impressive on promos he's never super energetic or anything but he's always got this very calm but driven kind of style that that i think works well it feels legit yeah i can see that also notable uh barbara i think ends this interview the same way she ended the interview with dusty rose which says uh work hard to get the title but work a lot harder to keep it she's used that line several times tonight yes (laughs) following this we get flair steamboat and jay youngblood posing with their belts which looks pretty cool they congratulate each other and flair takes the time to note the record number of title wins for steamboat and youngblood i think it was nice having him acknowledge that that he won the world title but you guys just did something really important too so our new world champion highlights how important that fifth win is yeah it's nice that was that was kind of cool yeah. Exactly. Finally, Caudill and Soli wrap us up and look forward to Starcade 84. Soli looks like he's going to get one more line in, but he gets cut off and just says, hey, 
Uh, what a what a great opportunity it was for them to see and to watch this event as it was happening. No question about it. From Walla Walla, Washington to New York City to Miami. Hey. <laughs> it just kind of kind of gets cut off there. I think it it sounds like he's about to go into something else, but he doesn't. You just want to say hi. Yeah, he's very chill. Also, why Walla Walla, Washington? It's just fun to say, I guess. Uh, yeah, I guess so. Some Bugs Bunny thing. It's like with La Coochie. Bless you. <laughs> Lower Nebraska. We get a short video package then of moments from the main event over a really nice uh, 80s guitar rock theme that freeze frames on Flair holding the belt while he's standing all bloody in the ring. Good ending shot. Yeah, these were kind of nice and all, um, a bun- uh, some nice moments in the interviews, but for me, just way, way too long. It's like 14 minutes of this stuff after everything important has happened on the show. I know this is not how it was back then, but what this feels like is something you would get, like, this was, say, 1988, and, you know, you watch, you know, whatever show it is, whether it's WF show or WCW show. And, you know, it would end with the title win, the, you know, Ric Flair promo, and he'd leave the cage. Then, you know, six months later, you go go to your local Blockbuster, RIP Blockbuster, except for one location. <laughs> one still holding on. And you would rent it, and you'd be like, here's a Coliseum exclusive home video. Here's yeah. all these interviews. I could see you filming them, but I don't see why you have to stall the ending of the show so much. Other than to quickly edit a video package together. Yeah, it feels like they are stalling for time because they're going to do a video package for the main event, highlighting the main event, and they couldn't obviously put it together until the main event was done. So they need time to get this together, but it just feels like too much time. A lot of this stuff would have been great, like on the next TV show or something like that to me. That and the credits. I wonder if they roll the credits early so that people will actually know what's going on rather than just walk out after the, the event. Yeah. Yeah, true. Yeah, for me, I think I would have ended it on the celebration and then pouring the champagne on Rick. That would have been a great ending shot. And then you can do other interviews or things the next TV show. Mm-hmm. I can see some variation of that. I can see you winning in the ring. Stay in the wide shot as they have like as well. Yeah. You can thank him for the replays in slow motion. Yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Yeah, I, I'm get, maybe the replays bit meant the video package, but there's no slow motion in there, I don't think, so, oh well. There was the punch through water, though, that one blow you were describing is... <laughs> yes, true, that yeah, was that, the there's slow-mo. the slow motion. Maybe it was, maybe that was normal pace, and that was the hidden slow motion. You have to act it <laughs> out. Frame rates were just crappy back then. <laughs> what are your thoughts on the show, uh, John? What's your thoughts on uh, Starcade 1983, just as a show overall? Other than bowling alley billboards behind the announcers, <laughs> it, I think it kind of defines that era. Uh, I mean, like it's mm-hmm. it's. I'm not going to say it's like the golden age of, of whatever, but you know, it it definitely had the hair, the the <laughs> the um, type yeah. of uh, words they were using. Um, you knew it was the 80s, no doubt. Yes. Oh yeah. Yep, early 80s all around. Very few people really escape that sort of looking dated. Maybe Steamboat, but even the, even his like casual wear is very dated 80s. Yes, yeah. His his look in the ring, I think, he's sort of timeless. But yeah. Same with Flair when he's wrestling. But yeah, it's other than that, everyone's pretty dated across the board. True, yeah. 
Yeah, it definitely looks like the kind of you know stuff my dad wore in the first few years of my life or something for for that general look. Knows your dad probably patterned his mustache after Harley Race. Uh, I don't think so. I didn't say he achieved it. I mean, that was the goal. <laughs> I can definitely see John's point in that. It definitely is very air-defining in terms of the way it looks. I think that does go both ways, though, because there's stuff that was sort of a carryover from late 70s True. into the 80s, like with stuff with Bugs McGraw and the Assassins, the whole, like, loading your mask for headbutts thing, and the look of a lot of stuff. But at the same time, you also get the stuff that either becomes timeless, like Piper with Valentine and all that, Mm -hmm. or something that would come to define the rest of the 80s in a good way, like Flair as world champion, Reggie Steamboat performing, stuff like that. So it's it's a good mix of good and bad. It's one of the shows where it starts out not terrible. I've definitely seen worse WCW shows, even at the start. But it starts out somewhat lackluster, but definitely builds and builds up until to a really good climax, I would say. Yeah. Yeah. For me, this started out not a particularly good show. It was very underwhelming in the early going. And while I found certain things that I kind of liked or was entertained by, the opening matches were pretty dull for me. They don't really make an impact, and they don't feel that important. They're not bad. It's just, you know, they don't seem like they really mean something. The last three matches help the show a lot. Yes. Piper versus Valentine is really intense. Steamboat and Youngblood versus the Briscoe Brothers is a really energetic tag match, very well performed. Ric Flair versus Harley Race is something I could really get into for its importance to Ric Flair, and it was worked really well and, and hard fought. Though I say that they helped the show, I'm not sure that I go as far as saying this is a good show in the end. There's a lot of stumbling around. There's a lot of technical glitches. There's way, way too many interviews. There's shots of the announcers just kind of talking and talking and talking. And while I like parts of all of it, it feels like the show drags. You get the same points over and over particularly like Dusty Rhodes' challenge. We're told he's challenging Flair. He cuts a promo to challenge people several times. He comes in at the end of the show to issue his challenge again. You know, it's like constantly mentioned over and over and over again that this is happening when really one time would do. Mm. Admittedly, part of that is an audio glitch interrupts at least one of those times, but still... And while it's cool to see all the audience and wrestler predictions about the main event over the course of the show, I think that would have been better served as one package yeah. rather than, oh, we're with these fans now, oh, we're with these fans now, you know, over and over again that kind of interrupts the flow of the show. Still, it was a decent watch, and it was definitely fun to see where it all began. And I'm not going to honestly go too hard against them on any of the stuff I just mentioned, because... It's literally the first time anyone has ever tried this. They deserve some grace for that, to be honest. So you don't expect them to get it all right from the beginning. Yeah, it's kind of like an inaugural uh, event, and it's something that's uh, first of its kind. So there's always going to be a bunch. It's easy to to sit back and say, oh, you could improve this, improve this, because you have all that span of time from then and now. (laughs) Right, yeah. Sure. To, to to draw experience from. So, fantastic bowling venue. And uh, <laughs> I, 
I think uh, the people at that time probably thought it was, was pretty amazing. Yeah, I mean, you watch the first WrestleMania. The very first match, the first WrestleMania is Tito Santana against the Executioner. True. That's yeah. If you're going to define a show, and it like, had two years of Starcade to look back at. That is also true. Yeah, <laughs> and yeah. this was live, right? Like, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. I believe they. I believe it's even said. Um, I think they always do their recording in in Jim Crockett Promotions live to tape. So there's like there's very minimal editing of the show, and that's probably why they need to pad so much because there's no. Right. I mean, when you'd have that closed circuit, I don't think you're running commercials, are you? So you, no. you know, you have to fill it with those interviews in order to set up the next match. Right. Let's do match of the night and MVP. Al, you want to go first? Sure. Um, it's a, it's a tricky one. The last three were constantly fighting for me over it. I think overall, I'd probably go match the night to the Steamboat Youngblood versus the Briscoes match. As great as the other two matches are, there's no issue with the finish for me, whether it's suddenly there's no title swap like there with the Piper Valentine mm-hmm. one. Or the, or the I'm not quite sure if this finish was done correctly bit with Harley, with Brace and Flair. And it's not taking away from them. It's just, I think, the most complete packet of the three, beginning, middle, and solid story, big payoff on the show, is the Steamboat match with Young with them. Okay. That said, MVP, it's tricky. Again, I mean, I want to just, just call it easy and say Steamboat. Part of me really wants to give it to Piper, though. Just because he was in a situation where he could have taken the easy way out and, um, as people say now, a walk and brawl kind of thing. You sort of walk around, punch each other, you don't wrestle, there's no story, but the ooh and ah of the violence covers everything for him. But he literally put his body on the line and put himself through hell to make a match so much better than it had to be, title or no title. Mm-hmm. So I think just because of what he did there, I have to, even though I didn't pick his matches, match the night. I probably still would Piper's MVP, just nearly edging out Steamboat. Okay. John, match of the night and MVP. Match of the night is clearly Piper versus Valentine. <laughs> okay. Um, first enough. first time I've seen anything like that, and um, you know I hope that I can't really think of any way to improve it. It was very interesting. You know what a way to go out for Piper. Uh, you know if this is the last time he's going to be with them, or you know I mean. Uh, for a, while, a big yeah. event oh yeah so you know great match easily easily my favorite for the night mm-hmm. okay and uh mvp i'm gonna go with steamboat I- i'm just doing a reverse aisle here uh, uh there you go okay. um it's the first time i've seen steamboat too this uh starcade was probably a little bit more exciting for me just because it was it was there's a lot of new newness to it yeah and sure. steamboat is just did a peerless performance i thought and uh you know, definitely flipping great. <laughs> Literally, I was just surprised yep. by that. So, um, and that kind of stuck with me for the like, w- why isn't Flair flipping around, and why isn't? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know. So, um, it stands out. Yeah, 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 absolutely. So, for a lot of the same reasons, I'm choosing totally uh, the opposite of Al. <laughs> yep. There you go. My match of the night is. Ricky Steamboat and Jay Youngblood versus the Briscoe Brothers. Really, really narrowly edging out Piper versus Valentine. Both are really, really good, exciting matches. They have good match stories. I think Piper versus Valentine has the edge in emotion, but 
a few really, really cool spots from Steamboat and the general excellent heel tag work of the Briscoe brothers gave the tag title match the win for me. Really, uh, on another night, I could probably have reversed that easily. Sure. So, and my MVP is Roddy Piper. (laughs) (laughs) He narrowly edges out Ric Flair in my case. Both Piper and Flair do an excellent job of selling the injuries and exhaustion from their match tonight. But Piper had a better, if short, interview, and the creative work that he did with the chain in his match really stood out. I really appreciated just the kind of innovative stuff that they put into that match. And like you said, this could have been a walk and brawl, and the emotion of the match probably still would have carried it in that case, but he worked really, really hard. And credit to Valentine, too, worked really, really hard to make that a unique and very entertaining contest. Also, honorable mention to Dusty Rhodes for being willing to put up with all the technical difficulties and still yeah. deliver some great promos. He's the man of steel. Yep. <laughs> yeah. Maybe, yeah. Maybe that means his temperament. I don't know. I'm curious to see how the next one, see if it, if it builds off of this, is it, if it fixes the problems from this one, if it creates new problems, or if it's perfect. I don't know. We'll yeah. see. I'm really curious for next year to see how developed Ric Flair's personality will be. Yeah. Will he be already the full-fledged Ric Flair that we know and love from later? Yeah. Or will we see the, like, developing Ric Flair, you know, at that point? I, that's that's going to fascinate me, I think. I'm really looking forward to that. I'm hoping for Ric Flair trying something totally different and just not working. <laughs> <laughs> you know, like, it's, like, it's like possible. a step in the wrong direction. It's possible. I, I think we're going to be stepping towards regular Ric Flair at least from what I know about Starcade 84 but yeah I, I don't know it's, it's possible that'll do it for our review of Starcade 1983 a Flair for the gold many thanks to pro wrestling history for attendance figures this week we'll be back next month with a look at Starcade 1984 the million dollar challenge this is Bob Moore for Alec Pridgen and John Mullins signing off good night everybody hey Ha, ha, ha.